You're listening to the Electronic Media Collective Podcast Network. For more great shows like the one you're about to enjoy, visit electronicmediacollective.com. And now, our feature presentation. Welcome to the exciting world of the movies. Hello, and welcome to this spooky Halloween afternoon edition of the Movie Graveyard. We're not quite ready to turn on the porch lights and put the pumpkins out. So, you know, we got a little bit of time here. So, Trev, I think this is a good time. We might as well talk about what is on the lips of every horror fan in the nation. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good podcast with you and I talking about the, the ultra divisive, surprisingly yes. enough. A trilogy that started a few years ago, uh, David Gordon Green's Halloween. I guess, is that what you think people are going to ultimately refer to it as? Do you think he put enough of a, a filmmaker stamp on it that it'll become known as that? Well, I was just going to, just for clarity, I was just going to uh, title this this episode, this podcast, David Gordon Green's Halloween Trilogy. So I think once yeah. we release this episode, then that's what everybody's going to be calling it. Yeah, yeah, we're going to set the standard for sure. Yeah. And then the lazy people, the hip kids... Like two or three years from now, they're you know once there's like more Halloween movies that come out after this, they'll just then kind of abbreviate and call this um, the Green Trilogy is what they'll call. Yeah, especially when the next movie that comes out will probably also just be called Halloween. Oh, it, it surely will. Yeah, <laughs> and we're about to get it in here fast and furious. But I gotta say, I had a you know you know me, you remember us going back and forth on Facebook. I had a lot of prejudice going into the 2018 film. And uh, that title, that, that had a lot of heat with me personally, but we'll get into it here in a second. Yeah, I mean, I'm still not like high on that either. I wonder, you know, we've seen this a lot now, right, where they reboot a series and they just use the name again, the same yeah. name. You know, Hellraiser just did it too. Yeah. Do you think we're going to get to the point where someday they'll go even further with that and they'll just make another Halloween Kills even? Or Probably. is it just always going to be the first one, the first title? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I mean, I think all the titles in this trilogy are pretty bad, to be honest with you. Like, yeah, I mean, if it's not just a number, right? It should yeah. just always like Halloween two. That's fine, I get it. But there's even two of those in the series. So what are you gonna do? I guess we should talk about that. Like, in your opinion, as not mm-hmm. just like a movie fan in general, or as a horror fan as well, does having a numeral, you know, they try to class it up in the eighties with with the Roman numerals, but does having a number at the end of a movie that, by the way, you fucking know as a moviegoer or a fan or whatever, you know that this is part whatever. Does that cheapen the movie seeing a number on it? No, I still prefer numbers. I, I wish more movies uh, today used numbers. Like all like the Marvel films, you know, Iron Man did it, and I think that was the only one. No, no, Guardians of the Galaxy does it, right? Yeah. But I, I just I just think that's something sequels need to bring back. Because like you said, we know, we get it, we understand. Now, yeah. I understand with some of these franchises – like Halloween is a great example, Texas Chance Massacre being another, where it gets a little, it does get a little wonky because there are so many continuities within the franchise. Right. But if you can have a number, I say run with it. I'm, I'm, I'm very pro numeral. Yeah, like I mean, it's just I don't know. Like to me, you're almost, and I get it's probably that's probably more for like theatrical exhibition when you're like trying to get that that more casual movie goer. Like, like I feel like it's like they feel like it's a barrier of entry trap. They're like, they're like. Well, we want to get the mom that, like, knows there's been some Halloween movies, but they don't know how many, and, Mm -hmm. like, her and her friends will just go see it on a Friday night, and, like, if they see Halloween Part 12 or whatever, like, they're going to feel like, well, I haven't seen the first 11, so we just won't put a number at all. (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's probably what it is whenever they restart it. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, uh, Halloween, you know, whatever the number would be, sounds better to me than Halloween Kills. That's the thing is, like, when you start coming up with these, like, subtitle titles, right. like you said, they're just always bad. Like, all like Halloween's just full of them, right? Halloween Resurrection, what does that even mean? Yeah, you know, Halloween Kills, too. yeah. Well, like, yeah, like, I would even, me personally, I would even be fine with the compromise. Like, you don't have to change the title card on the movie, but just the, the home video packaging, just just change that. Like, like a live, die, repeat type situation. Like, like why couldn't we just got it a Blu-ray case that said Halloween, and underneath it, it said 40 years later. You know what I mean? Like Right, yeah. I, I kind of wish they had tried to run even further with the the blank of Michael Myers because we got three of those in a row, right? The yeah. Return of Michael Myers, the Revenge of Michael Myers, and the Curse of Michael Myers. Yeah. I wish I wish they were just still running with that to see how many things Me we too. could have of Michael Myers. I agree. You, you know what's really weird, and uh, try not to get too many tangents. Try to get the main topic fired up here in a second, but like, and I know they won't do this for commercial reasons or just they're trying to look, uh, you know, respectable. But I actually think it would be more of a challenge right now if we're going to do this again and we're going to do it without Jamie Lee, obviously. I want to see somebody try and fucking follow up Halloween Resurrection. <laughs> the original timeline. Go back to the original timeline. Because That's Halloween Resurrection that... broke the thing so damn much that they had to do Rob Zombie remake. That's the one thing I'm waiting for a franchise to do. I've made that joke, too. And, like, we've seen multiple franchises now. Uh, in some cases, some franchises do it multiple times, say, hey, we're ignoring all the sequels except for the first one. But no one yet has really said, okay, well, we're coming in at just, like, we're going to try and pick back up from number four, even though they got up to number seven or something, you know? Right. So let's let's do that. I think, like, the closest you sometimes hear about that is people saying, oh, maybe if Friday the 13th comes back, they'll go back to Tommy Jarvis. That's not going to happen, people. <laughs> but, like, that would probably be the best bet, maybe. Yeah, like, I don't I don't know. Like, to me, it's just, it's always the cop-out to be like, oh, it's, you know, it's whatever. Like, even if you were to do something like, like, like you know, because, I mean, they totally, at the end of Halloween Resurrection, like, they totally, like, I forget exactly what the moment was, but, like, Michael Myers is all burned up or whatever, which, I mean, big deal. We've seen him get burned up before. I think there's like a morgue sequence or something where his finger twitches or he sits up or something. So like, mm -hmm. he's clearly out there. Can't you just be like, it's 22 years later or whatever, you know, from when that movie came out and like, he's been disappeared since. I mean, well, which, which continuity, this is so weird with this franchise, we can say this, but which continuity would you rather have them pick back up from resurrection or curse of Michael Myers? Uh, well, would you rather go back to the cult of thorn stuff or, just go back to like oh but the because the resurrection timeline there's really not much to it other than he showed up yeah fought, you're right you're right fought laurie again then killed her but you know there's... as much as i obsess over these movies for some reason i was thinking of eight as the original time but no you're right h2o is a reboot because yeah okay i think the reason i have this screwed up trev is i kind of in like my weird mind um because she's like not laurie strode in h2o like i had mm -hmm. somehow in my weird fanboy mind tried to retcon that jamie lloyd was her daughter that she just oh, left I think behind and that you're she... not the first person to do that i've seen people yeah. try to make that connection saying no this could all be the same continuity i think yeah like no for sure because like i'm a closet uh not even closet it's one i don't care it's one of my favorites i really like curse of michael myers and um i didn't think much of it at the time it went out uh because it was re re just continuing like that weird ass you know 
Cult of Thorn storyline, which like it's it is pretty brutal. Like when you watch mm-hmm. those parts of the movie, but I think the rest of that movie, like where Michael is in the house and he's killing the family as they come home, and then the 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 lady tries to go in the house to warn her mom that Michael. So like I think that some of the shit that like I think that like kind of recreated the Halloween vibe better than even parts four and five did, honestly. I think it's fine also to do that as a horror fan exercise to like try to like connect the pieces where they don't really exist and do these weird retcons in your own mind. I used to do that myself. Maybe we talked about this back in the day, but I've always been, cause I love Texas Chainsaw Massacre too, which I know you also do. Yeah. Like to me, that's the only like true sequel to the first one. And I do view it as a true sequel since it was Toby Hooper, but there's also at the beginning in their opening narration, it says that, you know, they they found Sally on the roadside, but they could never find the house. And I just always remember thinking, well, that's weird. That truck driver picked her up right in front of the house. So like, why wouldn't he be able to like tell them where it was? And then I also like Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, which kind of ignores 2 and just, you know, goes off the first one. So I actually was like in my head, like writing what I wanted to do, like originally years ago, I wanted to do this as like a comic book. I was like trying to like create the story that takes place in between 1 and 2 and then 2 to 3 to kind of try and put all those pieces together. And my whole idea was like the Leatherface in, in Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 3 is actually a different Leatherface. It's a cousin of the original Leatherface who like was inspired by him. And that's why he wears the mask now. So you could explain how he could get blown up by a grenade in part two, but still be there in the third one. And like, yeah, I think that's just something we do as horror fans. Cause like through the eighties and nineties, that's the thing about these franchises is they were not planned at all. Right. So all these sequels were coming out and they were always just, you know, creating a new story willy nilly. And it kind of leaves it up to you to fill in all the blanks. Yeah. Like it's really weird, but like I've always um, kind of with what you just had with your TCM idea, I always thought like, why don't they find, um, a way to do like a Halloween sequel that actually takes place in the past, like because mm-hmm. there has to be some period of time you could shoehorn in that like he was on the loose that's like not really accounted for in the movies because the movies go long periods of times without releasing a sequel, like you know what I mean? Well, that's the thing. Like ultimately, looking back on it, I mean, we're going to talk about what we like and what we don't, but when you hear them say, "Well, we're coming back with this Halloween reboot in 2018, and it's just going to be another direct sequel." And then you see what they did at the beginning of Halloween Kills. It makes you wonder why they didn't just do that, right? Just say, like, well, we're actually going to just make our own Halloween 2 and pick up later that night or even just the next year. Um, You know, why do the 40-year thing with Laurie when really, I mean, for whatever we're about to say with the trilogy, that had kind of been covered in H2O. You know, we'd already got, like, we'd already gotten the final confrontation between these two characters, so... I mean, before we jump into 2018, is there just anything in general you want to say about continuities that ignore sequels? Because it, it it always feels pretty cheap to me. It feels like, oh, well, you painted yourself in a corner over here, so now you're just going to wipe it all away. You know what I mean? I mean, it's definitely, for me, it's one of the things that keeps Halloween or Texas Chainsaw Massacre, those two franchises, from being as enjoyable and revisitable, if that's not even a word, but I don't go back to these franchises as as often as I do Friday the 13th or Nightmare on Elm Street, which obviously have their own, like, more minor continuity issues, but in general, you know, they pretty much follow a through line that you can go along with, and that's one thing I really respect about the Chucky franchise, how Don Mancini has kept this continuity even now into the TV show. Like, so that's... it it's really kind of annoying when you have, when you're talking to someone who's maybe a more casual fan and they ask you like, which Halloween should I watch? And you have to like explain this whole idea of how there's like four separate timelines. You have to refer them to Twitter where everybody makes those charts. Yeah, it does. 
I think there is actually a discussion to be had about this, though. Maybe we can get into it a little later when we're talking about these movies about why is it that, to, so to me, like the original Halloween and the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre are like two of the best horror movies of all time, right? And is there just something so powerful about those that they are so hard to sequelize that everyone gets intimidated by it and it causes them all to be like, well, we can't try to follow up on what the other people are doing. We have to go back to the original. Um, I think that's an interesting conversation, but it's still annoying. And now we here we are on the I'm sure on the precipice of another reboot or sequel to the original. We'll, we'll see. But yeah, I, I just I, I wish they could just at least stick with the same continuity for more than like four movies. That would be nice. Yeah, like, or or at least like tie it all up in a way. Just just do a, a like almost have a multiverse of madness type movie that tries mm-hmm. to come, even even if there's like things that don't jam together right. Just try to do a movie that picks up and combines all the continuities. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so yeah, so we'll get it in 2018. I, I think the best way for us to really, which by the way, we should say too. I just wanted to throw this out here is we're just gonna talk about these things full on because I mean, kind of the fun for, you know. Me and Trev, I think, to do this is to talk about what we like and don't like. So we're going to, from this point on, whatever 12-minute mark of the podcast, it's going to be all spoilers. So mm-hmm. if you haven't seen tw- Halloween 2018, H4O, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> if you haven't seen Halloween Kills or Halloween Ends, you're going to want to turn this off. And, uh, you know, most of our viewers, seen, or I always say viewers, but most of our listeners, Trev, they come along two years after a a uh, episode has been released so i don't think that would be a big problem but <laughs> yeah. you gotta throw out the obligatory spoiler warning you know what i mean yeah yeah so yeah halloween 2018 feel free to jump in if i leave anything out of importance but just broad strokes is we're picking up um 40 years after the events of the first halloween movie uh some british podcasters come to the insane asylum where michael myers is about to be transferred and they pretty much agitate him by showing him his original mask mm-hmm. and then uh we then we pick up with laurie strode laurie strode uh, basically her backstory in this film is uh, she had a couple of divorces some alcoholism problems she had a daughter that got taken away from her when her daughter was 12 years old by child protective services because basically what happened when you say trev is laurie became a doomsday preparer in this universe yeah pretty much she's uh, you know living on a compound you know we see how she even trained her kids how to use weapons uh, she basically looked like she would be living in like the UP in Michigan. Yeah, and I think really the important thing to really talk about here is you you have this um, relationship. So um, her daughter is played. Uh, her daughter Karen is played by uh, is it Judy Greer? Judy Greer. Yep. Yeah, and uh, her husband, who I believe his name um, I don't remember his name in the movie, but it's Toby Huss. I think is the actor's name. Great character mm-hmm. actor. Um, this casting alone, by the way, is is going to be my first comment on you. You need to know now. You are firmly in the world of independent independent filmmaking with director David Gordon Green, because <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> this is this is a cast that you would get in his films, but never in a in a regular Halloween film. If you know what I mean. Yeah. And then um, there's a granddaughter, Allison, played by uh, I always butcher her name, but I think it's Andy Matichuk. Mm-hmm. And um, so basically, if you want to think about this, this family dynamic is the the daughter is still upset with Laurie Strode, Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, for basically at this point in time, it's just like, hey, everybody's thinking Michael Myers has been locked up. Like, why did you screw up my childhood? Make me prepare for this man coming to kill us, you know? So like, she doesn't want anything to do. And Laurie Strode, you know, does still have a lot of problems still, a lot of anxiety problems. Um 
But basically, she's trying to keep the granddaughter away from her grandmother. That's basically the story. So the granddaughter and the grandmother, they kind of sneak around a little bit to see each other, you know, when they can and stuff. But um, so, yeah, basically, we get introduced to these podcasters. They're trying to, you know, they're basically just uh, they're interesting characters. I don't want to say like they're scummy, but like I kind of feel like they're scummy just in terms of like they're just those people cashing on a true crime fad when you say trap. Yeah, they're definitely played that way. The guy always – it's weird because I always think the guy looks like Conor McGregor, the MMA fighter, mm-hmm. to the point where when I first saw the trailer, I thought that was him. But, uh, yeah, I mean, like I said, I don't think they're trying to play them as, like, super unlikable. But I, they, they're I, – I, at the same time, I don't think the movie wants you to feel too bad when they meet their fate either. Exactly. So basically what happens is um, Michael Myers, he has, he has a new doctor, Dr. Sartain, who I actually like this character quite a bit. Um, but, uh, yeah, he's, he's riding along on the bus with the transfer. We don't see it. It happens off screen, you know, whether it be a budgetary thing or whatever, but somehow the bus, bus crashes, all the inmates go loose. Michael Myers goes loose. Um, so then everybody in Haddonfield hits the panic button as they should. You know, that happens the night before Halloween. Halloween day, we pick back up with the podcasters. They go to see the grave of Judith Myers to document that. And while they're doing that uh, is when Michael is stalking them. Michael is also in the graveyard and pretty much follows them to a gas station. He attacks them, kills them. And uh, this scene is very, like, almost reminiscent of the scene in H2O, wouldn't you say, Trev? Oh, yeah. There's a lot of, like, and now having seen the entire trilogy, it's not even like, oh, what a coincidence anymore. You understand that David Gordon Green actually had this all in mind because he references a lot of stuff from multiple entries throughout the course of these three films. Yeah. So basically, that's the big power moment. I guess we should say, too, the podcasters, you know, they supposedly pull some strings. They, I believe, unless they're just bullshitting, they actually claim this is the actual mask of Michael Myers that they have, right? Yeah, he says something about how they got it from, like, they knew somebody in, like, the DA's office or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which, again, I think we ought to suspend disbelief because that mask would have rotted away no matter where sure. it was stored. <laughs> yeah. But anyway... So, yeah, so Michael pretty much, like, in my mind, he pretty much goes to see them, like, he pretty much, he, like, he stalks them or whatever to get the mask back, and we get a great power shot of him putting the mask on. And then pretty much, yeah, like, everybody hits the panic button in Haddonfield. We get, uh, also a character of note is, um, uh, Will Patton. He plays Hawkins, um, old cop who they keep referencing and i thought this was like really brilliant trev they keep referencing in the in the 2018 film that he was there when michael myers got arrested and he feels bad that he didn't kill michael myers then and like it's kind of when you just watch the 2018 film like on its own at first like you're just like okay yeah whatever this guy has a history it feels a little cheap but like boy in the later entries they really go far to establish this don't they yeah, it's interesting again, and we'll talk more about this as we get into the sequels. But it is it is kind of fun to revisit it now and and think about how much the seeds were actually being laid, and how much there was something that they threw in and realized later they could pick up on. But uh, even bef- even when he wasn't super developed and we didn't get the later stuff, I'm always just excited to see Will Patton in anything. So it was, it was very nice to have him in here. Yeah. So basically, you know, from this point, it kind of becomes like a regular Halloween film. We, we follow the granddaughter, her boyfriend, one of their friends. There's a school dance. Um, Michael's on the loose. Um, he, you know, he, he strikes. The granddaughter's out on her own. And uh, pretty much like the main major, I would say, major turning point here is uh, 
the doctor is like kind of running around with Hawkins, the cop. Um, they get a hold of the granddaughter. They're trying to take her back home. And just coincidentally, they see Michael Myers walking down the road, don't they? <laughs> yeah. So uh, but... <laughs> very reminiscent of a lot of scenes in the first two, though, where like, yeah. you know, suddenly Michael just be there. Yeah. And um, so they basically run Michael Myers over. Uh, the doctor is like, no, you can't do this. You can't do this. We turn, we find out the doctor is actually either evil or obsessed with observing evil. So he won't, he will protect Michael Myers at any cost. And he actually stabs Will Patton in the neck. And then like one thing that was kind of sloppy, I feel like they didn't really count on is then they run over Will Patton with the car, which I'm like, he would be dead. But, <laughs> but well, you know, so basically, then it, it they they all three end up back at Lori's compound. Um, well, because that's the other reveal, right? Is that it's not just that Sartain is like fascinated by Michael's evil, but he's actually been he's the one trying to orchestrate right. like a rematch between Michael and Lori. Because exactly. like in this, you know, in this um, one of the main selling points or, or it's like story beats of this one is that Michael Myers actually doesn't give two shits about Lori, but yeah. Sartain is setting it up so there'll be this other encounter exactly and we'll talk about that in a second and i think i think in retrospect that's what's brilliant about this film that he doesn't care about Lori. but yeah so we we have the showdown um uh toby huss gets killed um so you know the granddaughter loses her father and pretty much like they blow off michael's hand they trap him in the basement they catch the house on fire and then the movie ends with them you know, uh, in the back of like a truck getting driven to the hospital because Lori takes a, a, a stab, you know, in the stomach. And um, yeah, it pretty much ends with with him. You know, he's in a burning house, Michael Myers. And you think, you know, like, I mean, if you're a real Halloween fan, you know, he's going to survive it. But right. pretty much the fire trucks go by and the movie ends with Lori screaming, let it burn, let it burn. So Trev, let, let's talk about what you like about this movie. Well, I mean, at the time, you know, you and I talked about this movie a lot, and I, I still think um, it's just a singular sequel to Halloween. I think it's really effective. And for me, I, I wasn't the biggest fan of the Rob Zombie entries. I certainly wasn't really a fan of what the original continuity had gone off into with, you know, or I guess not even the original continuity. The I, lo I, I like H2O, but then Resurrection, I am not a huge fan of. Um, right. I didn't like where the continuity before that went. So it's just kind of one of those things where it, this felt like a franchise that needed to get back on track for me. And that's very much what this movie was. And it's very, it's, this is very much the uh, force awakens of Halloween, yeah. right? It's, it's so calculated to just be like, here's what you like about Halloween again. You know, there is the one kind of big risk uh, and that's the Sartain twist. And now we might even realize that maybe that was them testing the waters a little bit for a, yes. a much larger version of that later. Um, and, you know, it definitely threw people off. But in general, beyond that, it's just like, here's Michael again, doing what you like. And also, here's us trying to fix the problem of the, uh, you know, the Laurie Michael sibling connection from the original. But I think there's like just a lot of like a lot of great. Uh, you, you, you mentioned the iconic moment, uh, already iconic shot of him putting the mask back on. Um, there's the great like tracking sequence where he follow Michael uh, through yeah. the neighborhood. Uh, that's that stuff is great. I think the bathroom kill is very brutal. There's a lot of like just little singular moments I remember really digging. I really like the moment with at the end in the climax with Judy Greer, where she's crying out and she she seems so weak and it turns out that's all just a ploy and a trick to like get Michael. Mm -hmm. uh, so I I liked that too. I did like the the three generations of Strode women i thought that was a nice like thematic the connection to it strong as they called it <laughs> yeah and honestly if like we never got kills and ends even i think this would just be a good standalone you know 
here's another Michael story. So I, yeah, I, I liked quite a bit of it. I had some small complaints, but overall, I, I quite dug this one. Yeah, I think my favorite kind of like, you know, Michael Myers geek out moment for me in the entire trilogy is that scene you're talking about where he's just walking through the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And then there's one where um, we, we meet a, she's a friend of the granddaughter, but we meet a character who's babysitting a little boy. This is very right. reminiscent. And like, <sighs> that's a great sequence michael's hiding in a closet she's trying to close the closet then he comes out and attacks and it's it's mm-hmm. really cool um by the way the stoner guy who like the first time i saw the movie the, the annoyed the hell out of me the stoner character i actually didn't realize until that was today um reading that was actually that's actually the son of uh, tim robbins and susan sarandon Oh really? I yeah, didn't know that. I found that interesting because yeah. I was like, I was looking at him. I was like, this guy looks familiar, but I know I haven't seen him. So I looked at him. I was like, oh shit, his name is Robbins. I'm like, yeah, he's Tim Robbins' son. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, like, um, so yeah, like, I guess my prejudice or whatever coming into it was, I was like, man, this is just H2O all over again. And yeah. Every- and everybody was so hard for for Laurie Strode to come back. I'm like, but she, it, like, I, it's it's one thing, Trev, when you're like you remember something very vaguely from like a series or something when you were a kid. But like, I was like pretty much, yeah, I was, I was an adult. I was 18 or over when H2O came out. Um, probably a little more over 18. Now that I think about it. Probably like, probably like 20, 21 when H2O came out. And, um, like I, re- like I lived that as an adult. So like, I didn't want to go back there. And like, mm-hmm. honestly, it was a lot of the same beats and that annoyed mm-hmm. me. But like, there's a lot to like in this. So, like, when I saw this movie for the first time in the theater, I was, like, I was with it, but I, I left the theater kind of empty because, I like like you said, like, I felt like they were just cashing in on something. I mean, I get that even at the time, and I think this is something I mentioned to you at the time. Like, I, I do, as, as an entire movie, I like this more than H2O, but, I mean, this is just a spoiler alert for the rest of the conversation. I don't think there's anything in this entire trilogy that I like more than the last like 10 or 15 minutes of H2O. Right. I think for me, that's like the perfect, like Laurie, Michael, final have at it battle Royale. You know, I, I think H2O actually pulls it off really well. I love the, and I know I, I, and I just, I'm just going to refuse to acknowledge the retconning of resurrection, <laughs> but yeah. I, I love just the, the final moment of Laurie cutting off his head and the music hitting. I think it's just yeah. a perfect ending and nothing in these really, really hits that same way. And it really, it, I agree with you, even though I liked the movie and I was never as um, you know apprehensive as you were, there was obviously something weird about Jamie Lee Curtis coming back again and saying, I just want to do that again. And even like kind of to go back to the alcoholism and the, the trauma thing, H2O yeah. had already done that. Maybe she felt like H2O didn't, wasn't ugly enough in its depiction of trauma. That's like the only thing I can think is why she was like right. kind of intrigued to come back because obviously they push it much further this time. But, uh, yeah, I, you know, it didn't need to be done, but it turned out better than it could have, given that yeah. caveat. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's something, too, where, like, at the time, it, it felt groundbreaking with H2O that mm-hmm. Laurie Strode, the good girl, was now, like, an, you know, an alcoholic and whatever. But, I mean, like, like, let's be honest, like, now when you look back on it, you know, whatever it is, tw- I guess 22 later, years later after even that or whatever it's been, it's just like okay like you're still a relatively young woman like <laughs> you're you look like a beautiful movie star <laughs> you like you can get in rehab and you can still probably have a good 40 years of a good life left you know leaving mm-hmm. this boogeyman shit behind whereas i feel like the reason people kind of got hard for um all excited for 2018 
was I think like you said like like people were just like this is a a, a much older Lori now at this point she's in you know not like she's gonna die tomorrow or nothing but you know she's coming into the twilight of her of her life there's not much time left probably to set things right and I think people like on a surface level like they dig into that drama more but I gotta say and again like I understand you have to judge the movie based on what it is and not what you as a fan want. I always wanted to see a version, like, even when H2O came out, Trev, I wanted to see a version of, like, Laurie Strode, like, 30 years later that had a great life. That was, like, this mm-hmm. awesome, like, you know, like, do-it-all soccer mom, you know, her kids are in high school, college, whatever, and she's, a, like, like almost like a leave-it-to-beaver type thing. And then Michael Myers coming back, we get to actually see her breakdown in real time mm-hmm. in the film. Like I've always kind of wanted that. And I feel like we never got that. You know what I mean? It's tough because I think the only way you, you can't do that with what they want to do here. And that's the other thing I want to talk about is, and I want to hear your opinion on it too, is the 2018 decision to eliminate the sibling connection. Now I know this has always been a bone of contention and you know, John Carpenter himself is on record saying he wishes he had never done that. Like he was just drunk writing part two and just came up with it as a, a twist and he always regrets it. But and okay, again, like no matter what else they say about this trilogy, even in this first one, you see this series trying to like have its cake and eat it too, of saying, well, they're not siblings, so we're getting rid of that connection, but it's still always going to build to Laurie versus Michael, which is kind of just confusing in concept. Yeah. Like, why even bring her back at all? Like, if you really wanted to drop that as a connection, just so you could have a, now a continuity that's free of always having to have Michael go after relatives then you could just leave Jamie Lee Curtis out of it in general and just have someone in this movie say, oh yeah, wasn't he going after his sister? And someone's like, no, that wasn't true. You know, and then right. you just then you just leave that character behind. Now, I, I understand the business reasons they brought Jamie Lee Curtis back. This movie's going to make way more money with her. But if she, if she if like the, what you were just saying, if she, if she just had this like great life and then Michael Myers comes back, like why would she even be in his path again? Unless she stayed in Haddonfield, I guess that's the only way to explain it. Yeah, like, it's just really, like, weird, because it's like, 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 I'm with John Carpenter, like, I never thought that was a good twist, I thought that was just kind of almost like a ripping off Star Wars twist, (laughs) have Mm -hmm. them be brother and sister, but it's like, it's like, if you don't have that twist of them being brother and sister, then there really is no reason for him to come back 40 years later and want to kill her, and it's like, that's why you kind of need the Sartain character like he's he's needed to completely function in the 2018 film because it's like he's the only thing bringing them two together because like as much as Laurie wants to hunt and kill Michael and all that kind of shit the truth is she probably couldn't find him if he was just out wandering around you know what I mean yeah that's why I have like a complicated relationship with this trilogy because I'm always happy to see Jamie Lee Curtis it's not like you don't it's not like I'm ever like yeah. oh no Jamie Lee Curtis you know and I like a lot of the stuff they do with Laurie in this but at the same time and I never thought I'd say this because I, I was kind of always, I always thought I was on Team Carpenter on this. I was like, yeah, that was a bad decision. They shouldn't have done that. But then because this trilogy is so intent on building to Laurie and Michael anyways, I kind of walk away from it saying, you know, if you're going to if you're going to have that be the main event you're building to, then actually I think I might be Team Michael and Laurie or brother and sister. Like I think it, it just it, I know you don't want them to have motive or whatever, but I think it just explains that that relationship better. Yeah. So I don't know. It's whatever. I mean, we have two different versions now, one where they're siblings, one where they're not either way. It right. still builds to them fighting. So yeah, it just yeah. seems like a pointless. <laughs> All roads lead to yeah. the same place. <laughs> no. Yeah. I like for sure. But it's like, yeah, when I saw this movie in the theater, like it left me kind of cold. 
but at the same time, I was so excited to have another Halloween movie. And even though I knew I was kind of walking into the theater to see H2O Part 2 again, like, you know, I still, whatever. Um, there was things, and again, I guess this is the first time we should bring this up because uh, the, the later entries get more divisive with people. Um, but, like, there's the... And, and I feel like Danny McBride, who's been one of the writers of this trilogy, he always takes the heat for it. But I think people aren't really familiar with David Gordon Green's filmography and the tone mm -hmm. of his films. So, like, we have the little boy who... Uh, well, I guess he's not a little boy. The 14-year-old the boy who... This is the first time, I believe, we see Michael kill a kid in, in the franchise. Uh, mm -hmm. Michael kills him to get the truck during the uh, the prison bus escape. And we got that kid telling his dad that he doesn't like going hunting all the time. He need, he you know dance classes are important to him. He he you know he likes going with his dad, but he's like you know. Then we get like even though I like the little babysitter boy, he's got a fun rapport. But then it's like no nine year old talks like that with a grown <laughs> or you know with a teenage girl or whatever. But he's fun. He's like the comic relief, the little boy Julian, who's in all three films in little minor ways. And then we have the the thing that really just fucking was like nails on a chalkboard and in what rewatching the film again today I, I still can't believe this bothered him as much but i hated that bond me sandwich shit that the cops are having yeah. that that dialogue so like the david gordon green humor what's your take and does it bother you is it one of the main things that bother you like where is the scale on irritability for you trev yeah, it's not one of the main things that bothers me. I get it sometimes. It's like it's kind of hit and miss. Like I, I really like Julian. I think Julian's like very, very funny. I actually really like the kid talking about how he wants to be like a dancer with his dad. Like, but then I'm with you that the bon me like sandwich thing goes on too long. We'll we'll get like as you said, this will keep popping up through the trilogy. I think in particular, there's some characters in the last one ends that I've seen people criticizing. And I'm with you in that if you know David Gordon Green, it's you kind of accept it more. But I also think it's a weird thing to see horror fans complain now about this because it's like they kind of it's almost like did people forget that the characters we remember and like, you know, still talk about from the old like Friday the 13th or, you know, any pick any horror slasher franchise are always like the weird characters who do have some bizarre character beat to them. Yeah. So I, I don't know why people would ever be like critical of saying, hey, this character could just be a generic bully, but instead let's do something weird like make them like the marching band. Right. You know, like those kind of <laughs> I'm ideas. I'm tired are of actually, that criticism. <laughs> yeah. Like those ideas are actually like that's fun, like to me. Like that's what makes the movie unique. That's what makes it feel like a bizarre, like, you know, strange, surreal town. And so it's not it doesn't all work for me, but I don't mind David Gordon Green and Danny McBride putting in their weird sensibilities and saying, let's populate Haddonfield with a bunch of weirdos and let's have these comedic beats. It's something slasher movies have honestly been doing forever, but like modern horror fans love to act like these problems just exist now and ignore them in the, in the old movies they love, you know? Yeah. Like it's really weird. And again, I mean, we'll, when we wrap up a lot of the stuff that bothered me the first time around doesn't bother me or it's like, I've accepted that this is this filmmaker and it's kind of like one of those things to me like david gordon green doing the halloween trilogy is like i'm kind of like i'm pretty on board with the vast majority of what this guy is doing as a director like i kind of got to swallow the shit you know just just like when rob zombie came out with the 
Halloween, and I was just like, man, what's with these fucking trailers, man? This is like Hillbilly Ween. Like, I was making fun of that movie hardcore before I went to the theater and saw it. And then I saw it, and, like, the shock had worn off, and I was able to take the movie in certain terms. And it's like, it's kind of like, yeah, it's like, I was a little huffy-puffy about it when the first film came out. And then when I saw Kills, and Kills, like, had a lot of the same, like, corny, over-exaggerated shit. But I'm like, this is this guy's, like for lack of a better term, style. Like, mm-hmm. it's his tone. It's his whatever. The only thing, I, like, I'll say with the 2018 film compared to Kills and Ends, and I wanted to see what you thought about this, Trev. When you watch Halloween 2018, I feel like it's, like, the first modern Halloween film we've had. Like, it, like, like it looks like, an, like, like, um, like a kind of, like, gritty independent picture um it it's got some cool visual shit it, it doesn't look like cheap and shitty in that way but it, like it's 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 filmed in a style that like none of the other halloweens have had i mean like the rob zombie ones kind of had the, their own mm-hmm. like style to them but it, like going the, the franchise previous to that like to me halloween movies have always looked like stylized but like low budget and like for lack of a better term, theatrical. Whereas I feel like the 2018 film, like it has like a really visually, it has like a very like independent, almost documentary feel to a lot of the shots and editing. Yeah. And I mean, that's definitely the, the David Gordon Green touch. But I do, I like one thing I would say, and I'm not sure if this is disagreeing with what you just said, but for me, I don't know if I, it felt jarring as much as kind of a return to like, um, a, I don't want to say prestige because that's, so I'm not the biggest fan of Rob Zombie's Halloween 2, but obviously, as you said, that movie has a very, very distinctive look. Yeah. Like, that's kind of like the most distinctive Halloween movie in terms of, you know, the sequels, at least. Yeah. Um, and it's so coming off of that, like what what 2018 was doing seemed like it was just a, an attempt to kind of return the franchise a little bit to what the previous entries had been. Because I honestly just think each Halloween movie for me is visually pretty indicative of the time it comes from. Like. Yeah. You know, Halloween Six and and like Resurrection, like those look like movies of their time, and I think 2018 does as well because nowadays these slasher entries that come that get the actual releases at least do try to look a little bit more polished. They do try to look a little bit more like a you know they're not they're not trying to look as cheap because that's like considered more of a you know an albatross around a series than it used to be. Yeah. So I kind of like that documentary look. Like I said, there's some like really cool like looking stuff in this because it did it did it felt more raw and it felt more real. And especially following like again, I whatever Zabi was doing with part two is yeah. which like visually I visually I have no problems with that movie. I think it's actually kind of cool like how he really swung for the fences. My problems are more script level there. But yeah, so I I, just, I was just happy to get the series back away from that. Yeah, yeah, like I the thing with the visual style of this film and really the trilogy, but this film in particular to me is even like like I really like the nighttime scenes and how black they are. If that mm-hmm. makes sense, like like you you it, it's hard to describe, but compared to other films, like you do feel more like like you're in like really black dark woodsy areas or like the areas that are like kind of in this the the scenes that are in the city where michael's creeping around like you feel like i don't know what you would call it like the halogen look that you get from street lamps and shit like i really dig this the visual style of this movie and i dig i dig uh it being used for a halloween film in particular the way they shoot michael i think mm-hmm. it works very well and it's um 
it, like, it's weird because it's he's he doesn't come off to me as quite as like I mean he's definitely stronger than like a regular human, but he doesn't seem as like m- like superhuman to me. Like he kind of looks the way they shoot him, he kind of looks more like a guy his age walking around town. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I actually find that kind of interesting. So yeah, so like I would probably give this like the first time walking out of the theater, I would probably give this film like a seven out of ten. But now that I've seen it like couple more times i would i would give this a solid eight like like for whatever shortcomings in it it's kind of weird too because like i mean the story is what it is it's a it's a lot of anger trauma emotion but i actually really uh to compliment jamie lee's uh performance i actually like all the scenes with her granddaughter like the normal scenes towards the beginning of the movie like Mm -hmm. i like and obviously you would never do this from a financial standpoint but like i kind of like like wanted to see the the halloween movie where she was preparing and just michael didn't come that year <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> and also i guess we shouldn't let it pass you know we might as well just say it now so we can save ourselves the trouble having to bring it up later but uh we also of course got the score from john carpenter yeah. and cody carpenter which was fantastic and it was just yeah i remember that was like the one of the for me that was like one of the biggest selling points of them all it was just like okay whatever else they got John Carpenter to finally come back and do music again, which was something I would just for years previous to that I always wondered, okay, I understand he's burnt out on directing, but I know he likes doing music. Why is no one asking him to just do scores? So I was very happy that him and his son worked on this. And there's some great new stuff in there. Like that whole, um, you know, this, I, I can't, I think it's called like the, the shape stocks Allison or whatever. Right. Like that, that, that guitar riff uh, moment is great. And yeah, it was just, it was just great wow. to have another, yeah, <laughs> yeah have another awesome. good Carpenter score was awesome. Yeah, yeah, that's one thing I forgot to look up, but it's like they really were selling the Carpenter involvement on the first film in mm-hmm. the series, and then that kind of like went away. I noticed with the, yeah. with the like I I don't even think he he did the music for Kills and Ends, did they? No, they did. They did, they did, no, they did all did? three of them. Yeah. Okay, it was just weird because it was like, and this is kind of weird thing too. If you remember too, like it, the, I would say the score for twenty eighteen. It almost sounds more like Suspiria than it does the Halloween score. <laughs> yeah, I think that was the kind of surprising thing, but also the cool thing, right? Of like, mm-hmm. I, I'm sure a lot of people heard Carpenter was doing the score again and thought he was just going to redo the the '78 score. But Carpenter is a different person now, right? And he's evolved yeah. musically, and what he wants to do is different. Um, but I thought each time he he did make a you know a killer score. You are definitely right, though, that you know all like the hubbub about john carpenter producing this and being back that was that was dropped after this one which is interesting because i I think he kept the same role all the way through and i've seen him do some interviews and john carpenter doesn't suffer fools you know and i think he's pretty honest about things and when i hear him say that he actually kind of respects what david gordon green was trying to do i don't know i believe him i know some people say he's just saying that because he's you know in in it for the money but i don't i i I take him at his word i'm sure he wouldn't have cared either way but yeah, it just was crazy because I don't know if you remember. Obviously, uh, COVID was a factor when the the other ones came out, but it it wasn't mm-hmm. in 2018, obviously. But like, do you remember Trev? They did that like that really huge like press thing where they were like, I think it was on a soundstage. It was like a street, and they had a table out there, and they did like Jamie Lee Curtis solo interviews, and they did David Gordon Green. But then they also had like round tables with like Jamie Lee, David Gordon Green. John Carpenter, Jason Blum, um, and then there was like some J or some sorry some John Carpenter ones. Like I remember this one, like they gave him like a cardboard Nintendo piano and tried to get him to play like the 
the Halloween theme on it. He's like, oh, this is really terrible. I can't yeah. play it. <laughs> yeah, it's a great video. I mean, it was just like really like crazy how much. But I mean, that's the way it is. So like, yeah, he did he did the score with his son and also uh, Cody Carpenter and also his son. I'm sorry, his godson, Daniel Davies, um, yeah. who is, uh, I believe, the son of Ray Davies from the Kinks, if I'm right. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like, I don't know. It was, it was cool. And like, obviously, the soundtrack, because that was around that time that uh, Carpenter started releasing those like Lost Themes albums and all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which are great. And really, anytime, it, anytime there's an excuse for John Carpenter to do more press, it's always a good thing because the world can never have too many uh, grumpy John Carpenter interviews. <laughs> Which, by the way, just because we're talking about it, I gotta call you out a little bit. You, I was, I was defending John Carpenter for years, like, and I still think a lot of stuff he says in interviews is like either taken out of context or way overblown, like way mm-hmm. overblown. I don't think he's that mean of a guy. Like, uh, yeah, he, do- he doesn't suffer fools lightly, but he's not that mean. I don't think, I think, he, I think he's mean in a very funny way. Yeah. I think like, I think he's probably someone who understands his grumpiness too. And like that has a public perception. I think where I sometimes like, and I, and I've never personally experienced it. So maybe I am being overly harsh, but I've heard like stories about him, you know, kind of being cold and like with fans who meet him at events. Yeah. And like that always rubs me. I was like, ah, that's too bad. But also I can also, you know, he has been asked the same questions for 40 years now. Yeah. Um, so uh, like, I guess I can understand his point of view too. But yeah, in general, I definitely find him like a lot more entertaining nowadays than I, maybe I even did a yeah. few years ago. Because it's, it's, I don't know, everything's become so sanitized and neutered in terms of press. I'll, you know. If I have to choose between watching a John Carpenter interview where he's just being salty or any uh, of The Rock, you know, doing yeah. his corporate bullshit, I know which one I'm going to pick. So. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so, I mean, overall, like, just any uh, parting thoughts on this film? Because I think we're pretty much kind of similar in terms of, like, we feel like it was more of the same, but we enjoyed it, kind of. Yeah, yeah. The only other thing I would add really quickly is I think another disagreement between the two of us is I don't I, I don't like the Dr. Sartain twist. Mm. I get what they're going for. And like, especially as I said, now that you see how it kind of plays out a little bit more in, in the next two, this idea of Michael's evil being contagious. This is like their first d- dipping their toe into that water. Right. But I think it, because it's so brief in the movie, that's why it's so jarring and feels bizarre and out of place. And like that first reveal of him poking up with the wearing the mask. I don't know that that whole moment like that. That's like a five minute stretch of the movie that always loses me. Yeah, so like this is what I'll say and and what I'll relate it to. I I didn't like it the first time either. I did. It's not that I didn't like it, Trev. I didn't buy it the first mm-hmm. time I saw the film, and it's just kind of like the the thing I'll relate it to is like I'll go with something I don't like very much if you double down on it later on. So when I saw the first Wonder Woman film. I thought it kind of cheapened the character that she just kind of jumped into bed with Chris Pine after like a day. I'm like, yeah, she's an independent woman. She can do whatever she wants. She can do, you know what I mean? But then when the sequel, and I know people don't like the sequel, but the sequel doubled down on how in love they were. Then I'm like, Mm -hmm. well, okay, it's okay now. Like it wasn't (laughs) like a casual sex thing. Like these two people were the love of each other's lives, even though they only knew each other for three days or whatever it is. So that's where I'm at with Dr. Sartain. Like, I didn't buy it for a long time. And even when I rewatched the film a year ago, right before Kills came out, I was kind of like, yeah, it's good. that's kind of a leap. Uh, you're, you're asking us to take a big leap of faith there, uh, uh, Mr. Uh, mm-hmm. Gordon Green. But now that I saw Halloween Ends and the trilogy and everything, rewatching the film today and seeing that twist that Sartain does, I'm kind of like, 
damn, this motherfucker, Gordon Green, was light, he was laying the seeds, like, a lot, mm. you know? Now, do you think if Donald Pleasance had still been alive, that that just would have, they would have, that would have been Loomis? Like, that Loomis had been, over time, driven to that? <sighs> you know, that's really hard to say, because part of me wants to say Donald Pleasance wouldn't, like, agree to do the film, if that's what they're going to do with the character, but then again, we know Donald Pleasance, like, no offense, even he says it. <laughs> You know, he, he took, like, you know, more than one too many roles, so maybe he would have done it. I think there would have been, like, you know, I don't think they would have done it, Trevor. Here's why. It's kind of like when you turn Captain America into an agent of Hydra. It's just, it, it's it's ingrained with us too long. Like, yes, Pleasance, uh, or I'm sorry, Dr. Loomis, we always knew he was, like, off his rocker and nobody believed him. But he never was a bad person, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Yeah, I mean that's I guess the the only question would be like you said this would be like rewriting all that, you know, continuity. Yeah. Right? And you could make the the argument that spending, you know, 40 additional years with Michael has done something to him. But obviously this is all speculative. It yeah. just felt to me like this the Dr. Sartain character even when you start watching the movie it just feels like he only exists because Donald Pleasance has passed away and they they need like a psychiatrist character there. Yeah, well th- th- there's also a great line too when Laurie meets him for the first time. Because, uh, you know, she knows, um, you know, Hawkins, uh, they know each other. And, and he's like, oh, you know, like, uh, this is Dr. Sartain. And then Lori looks at him and says, so you're the new Loomis, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, yeah, it's like, I don't know, like, I don't know. It'd be, I, I think we could have, but then again, Dr. Sartain's kind of an older guy. And they set up that he was a student of Dr. Loomis. So, like, mm-hmm. it kind of, but, like, I almost think in a weird way, like, and let me let me hear what you have to say about this, Trev. Is I almost think that turn in that character kind of would have been more interesting if Doctor Sartain was a woman. What do you? Any thoughts on that? Oh, I I agree with that. Yeah, for sure. Because then you could almost get into like depending on the age of the woman or whatever, you could almost tap into a lot more. Like, is she a tr- is she is she like one of those women who who writes letters to serial killers <laughs> yeah. and falls in love with them, or is she like? have more of a maternal instinct because there was Sartain there was a little bit of he was trying to protect him and then it you know kind of became because he was obsessed with him but it's like okay where's that coming from it's like it, it never really came off as like a, a fatherly sort mm-hmm. of you know maybe this is just maybe my problem with it too is just a little bit on the actor like no offense yeah. to the actor but he just something seems like off about him from the moment you first see him he, <laughs> like he's yeah. just got he has like an evil vibe from like the, his first you know his first scene so well, yeah, I was going to say, too, like, he's very sinister. And then, like, it kind of bothered me that, like, when they bring he, – he's, like, there when they bring in the podcasters in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And he's explaining to them, oh, you know, Michael can understand you. And he could talk. He just chooses doesn't to. Like, he lets that dude go up and, like, hold the mask up and actually scream at Michael. Yeah. And, like, especially rewatching it, I'm like, first of all, what di- – it's like, you know, like, first time you see it, you're like, oh, okay, this is a horror movie. It's not really supposed to be realistic. But then, like, today I was like, what doctor would let somebody do that to their mentally disturbed patient? You know what I mean? I guess a doctor just understands the power of a great moment before the opening theme kicks in. <laughs> exactly. And l- let's just talk about this now, too. Not only the opening theme, but the opening title. Because, as we said, it is Halloween, and they have to use the exact same font of the original mm-hmm. Halloween. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, again... I mean, I think that's pretty much everything. I know there's a lot we skipped over, but you know, we you know obviously want to give you guys reason to go watch the film or rewatch the film again. Um, 
I'll let you try to break down Halloween Kills because there's not oh, really any plot whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a rough one. I guess I'll save my thoughts of how this movie happened until after I try to explain the plot. But uh, much as the original Halloween 2 did, Halloween Kills once again just continues in the same night. Although, you at first, the, the opening of the movie is actually a return to the first night of the original film. Right. So it's almost like we get a little mini remake of Halloween 2, but just to say, hey, here's just the immediacy of what happened after you know Pleasance shot him, he fell off the balcony. How did they catch him? I guess maybe they felt like we were always going to wonder that, so like why not show it to us? Yeah. And this is where we get the, the, the Hawkins kind of more, the origin of showing why he has such this, you know, uh, this vendetta against Michael, why he feels so guilty. Then we flash forward back to, you know, the same night where uh, we learned that the fire, uh, despite Laurie's pleas to let the house burn, the fire department does go there and are brutally slaughtered by Michael, who comes out of the house almost seeming like he's been supernaturally rejuvenated. Like he suddenly yeah. seems like an even stronger, more deadly figure. And he continues his his slaughter through Haddonfield. At the same time, we are, uh, you know, reintroduced to Tommy Doyle, the young boy that was uh, that Laurie was babysitting in the original, and um, Lindsay Wallace, the the little girl. And we find out that they, along oddly enough, and I still don't know if I buy this, they are they are friends with Marion Chambers, yeah. the the nurse that was in the car with Loomis at the beginning of the first one. And they kind of get together every Halloween at this bar and kind of like reminisce about their their experiences with Michael Myers and surviving him. Um, oh, and also, um, uh, what's it? Lonnie. Lonnie, Lonnie yeah. Lonnie, yeah. Uh, who we discover is the father of one of the characters from the first film. Um, but they all get together at this bar and they, they, you know, talk about what happened on Halloween 40 years ago. And then as they're there, they hear the news that Michael's on the loose again. And this causes Tommy Doyle to give this, you know, uh, to get the town riled up. Um, you might have heard the, the phrase evil dies tonight. You will certainly hear it <laughs> a lot when you watch this movie. Um, but this very much becomes a movie about mob mentality, about seeing how the the town decides to take it upon themselves to go after Michael. And what I now realize very much again, I think, was uh, a larger nod to like the is it Halloween four or is it five that ends with like the whole mob sequence getting the town kind of together <sighs> to chase him. I think it is four. Right? I want to say it it, it kind of in a way happens in both films, Trev. Because yeah. if you remember, part four has those guys. It's just kind of like a small group of guys from a pickup truck that go out of a bar and they go mm -hmm. hunting for Michael Myers yeah, and yeah, actually yeah. shoot a wino. But I think part five, they're like the cops have like the SWAT team there yes. and everything. And it's kind of like, it, I can't remember if there was a mob there or not, but it's, it, it, I know exactly what you're talking about. And it, it, it seems like it's paying tribute to both those films really. Yeah. Well, and speaking of paying tribute to films, the other kind of massive, um, well, you know, it's odd to call it a massive plot point, but in what is a clear nod to the original Halloween 2, Laurie spends this entire movie in the hospital, right. recovering from her wounds from the first one. Um, Even Rob Zombie did that in his Halloween 2. <laughs> he tried yeah, to start out bit. with the hospital scene. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's kind of like, that's the, that's the misdirect of this, right? By putting Laurie back in the hospital, you assume Michael is eventually going to end up there. But instead, another escaped inmate who the town mistakenly believes to be Michael Myers, which is very weird considering they all saw pictures of Michael on the news, but whatever, we'll yeah. disregard that for the moment. Uh, but this other inmate, this innocent inmate, ends up at the hospital. And the town kind of goes after him, leading to his death. 
which is when um, the do- oh, what's Judy Greer's name? Uh, Karen. Karen. Yeah. When Karen realizes like what is happening here and the you know the danger her mother's paranoia and the town's paranoia has wrought, and this all ultimately builds to you know a final conf- well keep calling it a final confrontation. Obviously, it's yeah. not <laughs> the final, final, final confrontation. Yeah. But this, the, the town, the, the mob led by Tommy Doyle, finally kind of tracking Michael down and thinking they have won and not realizing that, sorry, you can't, you can't defeat this boogeyman. A lot of pontificating in Halloween Kills about the nature of what Michael is and how evil he is and is he a man or is he something more. And Michael, after seemingly being destroyed by this mob, including the infamous woman with an iron, um, Michael rises from the street, just slaughters this entire mob. Yeah. And then returns to his original childhood home, and the movie kind of shockingly ends with him killing Karen. Uh, yeah. So Judy Greer does not make it out of this movie, and we we end on a revelation that Michael's entire modus operandi this whole time has apparently been to just return to his home where he can stare out the window of his sister that he murdered in the original. So sorry if that was a little rambling, but I I I'll, I, I no to, that's perfect. To me, that's... it's a little bit of a rambling movie, but we'll, we'll talk about that. So yeah, because is he looking out the window, Trev, or is or is he, he looking, looking at himself? Yes. Is he looking at? Oh. <laughs> Yo, you just fell out of your chair. That was so mind blowing <laughs> to you. <laughs> so yeah, so okay, Halloween Kills. I think the first thing I'll comment on, and I think I'm still blown away, honestly, by the hate this film gets, because I would think that this film is, like, in a a lot of ways, delivering what your kind of average, you know, popcorn-munching Halloween fan would want in a big-budget theatrical whatever. But, like, I think it's... If you compare Halloween to Halloween 2, and I do like Halloween 2, the original Halloween 2, quite a bit... Uh, I watched it several times. I used to own it on VHS, and uh, obviously I've owned it on every format since then. Um, it's enjoyable in its own way, but it's uh, I've always had a hard time taking Halloween Two seriously as a direct same night continuation. Because even though director I think it was Rick Rosenthal did a great job of stylistically trying to ape the first Halloween and make it match stuff, Halloween Two is a very more over the top film like compared i mean it's kind of tame compared to other slashers at the time but it's mm-hmm. it's way over the top compared to the first halloween john carpenter's For halloween sure. and i think i think that's what very intentionally uh david gordon green was trying to do here again he copies the halloween 2 font and um yeah i, I think it's you know like you said the mini remake of halloween 2 which that little mini remake at the beginning of halloween 2 where it flashes back to 1978 um I think it was Chris Nelson who's done all the a lot of the effects and stuff for this trilogy. He said like the original draft, like almost half the movie was going to take place in 1978. And I gotta say, because the rest of the movie is relatively plotless or storyless, like I kind of would have been about that. Like, what do you think, Trev? Like, because they definitely add some mythology things into the to trying to re- kind of retcon the 1978 version. Like, they have Lonnie as a kid come across Michael. He bumps into him on the street and shit. Like. Would that have turned you off more, or would you have liked to see more of the 1978 flashback? No, I love all the 1978 stuff, and I thought it was really cool how I know the cinematographer Michael Simmons um, actually like called Dean Cundy and like talked to him about the lighting of the original. And you were you had mentioned in the previous um, when you were talking about the, the 2018 film about how it has this very distinctive look. 
and if you don't agree with that, it's like it's more evident when you watch Halloween Kills because the those nineteen seventy eight sequences don't look like twenty eighteen and don't look like the rest of this movie. Right. They do like a, a really good job of kind of replicating Carpenter's camera movements, the the lighting, um, like it's it's really impressive. I mean, when you yeah. see that version of Michael walking down the street, it really looks like it could be like deleted sequences that you never saw from the original. Um, so yeah, I liked all that stuff. I thought that was like a, a really, and I thought it was a really cool, fun way to start it too, to kind of take us back to that night. Because like, again, even though I don't think you need to show the moment where he's caught, we do know he was caught. So it does, there's no point of, you're not demythologizing anything by showing it at this point. Like yeah. you might as well pay it off and say, Hey, here's what happened. And I even think there's something very chilling about seeing Michael surrounded by cops and realizing that he apparently did just surrender and why, why yeah. would he have done that? You know? So I think there's, there's some interesting kind of questions that are raised there too. Yeah. And I mean, I love, you know, me, Trevi, I love a lot of the reason why I like older movies is because I love the way they look. And like, I was like, Holy shit, man. Could could we really get a whole film that looked like this? Cause I mean, it's, it's really gorgeous. And again, we're getting into the uh, kind of the geeky weeds here, Trev, but, holy shit that 1978 flashback mask that was straight fire like, yeah that was the closest anybody's ever come to the original mask you know yeah which is crazy because like we've seen that the series for a long time struggle with that right which yeah. it seems like it should be the easiest thing to just replicate that mask and so uh, for some reason nobody can pull it off but here they they finally did and speaking of great masks they even made an incredible donald pleasance like mask for yeah. that for that actor I, I gotta say, like, that Donald Pleasant stand-in guy and the, the voice acting, which I, I don't believe, you know, I, it, it wasn't, this, the guy, the voice wasn't coming from that guy. It was no, a, no, no, a, yeah. a looped-in thing. But I gotta say, if you're gonna do that kind of hokey trick, do it as well as this film did it, in my mm-hmm. opinion. Like, I yeah. loved it. Like, I kind of wanted more. And, like, even, even though, like, in the back of my head when I was watching it the other night, even though in the back of my head I'm like... Well, this is kind of fucked because this is like not Donald Pleasance acting in this scene, but I feel like it's Loomis. Like it was weird. Like my brain, mm-hmm. like, and I'm not complaining, like, like in a good way, like I was going along with it and I was just like, cause he wants to kill Michael and then Hawk, young Hawkins, uh, comes up in a, you know, like right before he's, he's, he's going to shoot Michael in the back of the head in front of like all these cops, uh, young Hawkins comes up and, you know, like jerks his arm. So, you know, he shoots up into the air or whatever. And I was like, "Holy shit! That just that leads a lot of that that lends a lot of power to like Loomis, like, like yes, we we know when when Michael was completely on the loose and slaughtering people. We know Loomis was running around with a gun and he was going to shoot him in order to stop him. But it's like a whole nother level when Michael is surrendering to the police and he still is like, I gotta kill this evil. This is evil. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, so like." And normally, like, I hate any sort of retconning shit. Um, so I guess we should explain a little bit in the original film who Lonnie is. So there's that group of kids, like, and if I'm fucking this up, correct me, Trev. But there's, like, that original group of kids that bully Tommy uh, at, the, mm-hmm. at the school and they make him drop his pumpkins. And, like, I don't think Lonnie's the main bully, is he? He's just, like, one of the kids? Yeah, I think he's just one of them, yeah. So, like, later that night when Loomis is staking out the Myers house those bully kids come by and they're like daring Lonnie uh, to go in and like Lonnie like kind of goes up to the, to the, the, you know, the door or something like he's going to go in, but he's scared. And then like Loomis is in the bushes. So like, just to kind of play a trick, he's like, Lonnie, get your ass away from there. 
<laughs> it's pretty much the only moment of humor in the original Halloween, I think. And Lonnie runs away. Yeah. And and make no mistake, it's not like Lonnie is a very crucial, important character mm-hmm. to the mythology of the first movie. He's only back in this because people remember that moment, and it's right. been memed, and people joke about it. So, like, that's David Gordon Green kind of, like, you know, taking a piss a little bit of saying, well, let's just, let's bring that character back. And it's it's a question of, is that funny, or is it pushing too far into the let's reference everything from, you know, the original movies? Like, that's where you yeah. start to, it's, it starts to get a little questionable. Yeah. Like, do we need Lonnie back? You know, that's like the the question. I guess what I would exactly. ask. Exactly, and and well, I guess we 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 didn't really talk about him because Lonnie is talked about because Lonnie's daughter. I'm sorry, Lonnie's son is dating Lori's granddaughter, um, mm-hmm. but we never. I don't believe we never actually see you know any actor playing Lonnie in the the previous yeah, film. Yeah, not in 2018. No. Yeah. So, like, let's talk about that for a second, Trev. So, watching these back to back, and I feel like you almost have to watch them back to back. So there's a lot of characters that make multiple appearances. Um, the little boy who was getting babysat, Julian, he's in all three films. And mm-hmm. I couldn't find her in the 2018 film, but you know the the the, la- the lady with the short blonde hair that gets the, the mm-hmm. fluorescent the tube in her woman. neck? Yeah. She's supposedly, according to the credits, she's in the first film, but I could not find her. I could not. Yeah, I don't remember her. that. I mean, I, I thought that was really cool. They brought her back in ends, but yeah, I didn't realize yeah. she was in all three of them. Yeah. yeah. And then we have, uh, we didn't even talk about him, but he's just like the coolest as fuck guy, I think, in these trilogy of films. We have the the Sheriff Barker, uh, <laughs> the, the the guy that walks around, he's like the from the sheriff. And I don't know if this is because like, he works for the sheriff's department or it's just like his own personal quirk, but he's, he's a, I'd say he's kind of like a younger African-American police officer guy, probably in his late 30s, early 40s, and he just walks around this fucking town in Illinois wearing a big cowboy hat, and yeah. I love it. And that's the kind of thing, again, where I've seen people criticize that and say, like, why would a town in Illinois have a like a, a black cowboy sheriff? And again, I would ask, why not? Like, you remember that character, right? It's yeah. just sometimes, it, like I said, it's just fun to have those little character details. And it, it, it's really not, like, that big of a stretch. Like, I... Mm-hmm. Like I like, like I don't think people really know how many Mexican cowboys there are too, Trev. And it's yeah. like it's a whole culture, and and people who are grow, grow grow up in the the like in the farm area, whatever. Like even here, like if you go down to Central California, there's people of all like literally all races that uh you know wear the the cowboy style stuff, wear cowboy hats, wear cowboy boots. You know what I mean? And it's just like, yeah, like I. I don't know. I just think that guy's like a fucking pimp because like some of his dialogue and shit, <laughs> it's so fucking good. Like when um, he shows up to the crime scene in the 2018 movie and Sartain is like out of the hospital because like he got shot accidentally during the bus escape. And he just like he tells he tells Hawkins, he pulls up in the car. He's like, look, who's up? <laughs> it's like, like who's, look, who's awake? This motherfucker. Like he says some of the funniest shit and he says some real funny shit, too, and, and kills every. I forget what Ollie says, but he's a recurring character. Um, I guess technically, obviously Lonnie is, but he's not seen in the in the first one. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a there's a bunch more I'm forgetting, and I'm just like, I appreciate David Gordon Green making this a true trilogy with characters, even if they're like super super minor and like you know like the like the little boy Julian, like you know he's got a pretty big scene, a couple pretty big scenes in the 2018 film, and then he's just like. They went through the effort, like he's in the in kills. He's only on the TV getting like interviewed for the news, and mm-hmm. then in the third one, like there's literally just a shot of him walking down the street as like the funeral thing happens. 
but like i appreciate that level of detail because like not many people like filmmakers anybody like care that much to make their trilogy an actual freaking trilogy like if more people treated trilogies like this i would probably actually like the idea of trilogies you know what i mean well and i think it you have to do it right because if you are going to and we know now this is the case obviously the thematic thrust of the entire david gordon green trilogy is what is the impact of michael myers on haddonfield yeah and if you're going to tell that story you need to make haddonfield feel lived in and you can only do that by showing us the same people you know multiple times yeah so i guess one of the main things that we have to talk about and again like i'm with you like when when they introduced that like this group of people Lonnie, Tommy, Lindsay, the little who, who they actually did get the actual actress. Uh, I think her name's Kyle Richards, who was played mm-hmm. the little girl in the original Halloween. Who had gone on to become like a reality TV star. Right, right. And um and then obviously um I'm blanking on her name, but Marion, the nurse, they obviously got her back. Mm-hmm. Um I was like, this is a little whatever that this nurse like I could kind of believe Tommy and Lindsay getting together. Yeah, for sure. You know, maybe Lonnie, too. Like, you know, because, I mean, whatever, Lonnie was kind of a bully or a kid going along with the bullying. But it's not like him and Tommy would have hated each other for the rest of their lives, you know. Mm-hmm. But I'm just like, well, if you're going to have to kill a bunch of people off and you're doing a fan service sequel anyway. <laughs> and, and and the movie's trying to be more over the top than the previous film kind of was. Like, I kind of, I'm kind of willing to roll along with it. But we got to talk about Tommy Doyle, right? Like we have. Well, to. I just, I just really, yeah, we do. But just quickly, my, my problem with the the Marion the, the Marion Chambers thing with the nurse is like not only, like you said, you can buy the Tommy and and Lindsay and Lonnie because they were all kids in the town. Right. And Marion Chambers is this nurse who you know is not a Haddonfield resident. Why would she, when would she have ever met these kids? Right. Why would right. she be friends with them now? And I think the problem with it is, and this speaks to what happens with these legacy sequels sometimes is she's only there because she was also in Halloween 2 and Halloween H2O. Right. But you've removed those two films from continuity. So, like, you're bringing her back because she's, like, a part of this franchise, but you're disregarding most of that. So she definitely does feel really out of place in this. So that's that's my issue with it. But, uh, but yeah, let's talk about Tommy Doyle. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, and in my head, I kind of justify the nurse because I'm like, well, no, she was the one who told Loomis that, uh, you know, uh, Lori and Michael were um, brother and sister. But wait, no, that didn't happen in this. So, yeah. like, yeah, it's it's the biggest stretch possible. But, yeah, let's talk about Tommy Doyle. So, Tommy Doyle, played by one of my favorite actors of all time, Anthony Michael Hall. I loved him as a child actor. I loved him as an adult actor. But holy shit, this – and again – we got to pretend like these other sequels didn't happen. So we had the adult Tommy Doyle played by Paul Rudd. Mm-hmm. Paul uh, Christopher Rudd. Oh, Paul Christopher Rudd? Is that... Yeah, isn't that? I think that's how he's listed in the opening <laughs> PC Halloween. Rudd? <laughs> I'm actually watching PC Rudd right now because I got uh, Halloween 6 playing Oh, in no, the sorry. It's Paul Stephen Rudd. Okay, I know Paul like Steven. in, the, in the opening credits for Halloween, uh, Chris Michael Myers, they have his like full name. It says like introducing Paul Stephen Rudd. Yeah, yeah, because I think that was his first movie, but um, mm-hmm. but yeah, we have to disregard that. So we, we like, we, you know, and I think that's hard as a fan because I like Paul Rudd as Tommy Doyle. He was good. Like we kind of have to disregard that, and we have to accept Anthony Michael Hall's portrayal. Mm-hmm. Um, because realistically, last time we saw Tommy Doyle in this series, he was probably like eight, nine years old. And I mean, I think we're all probably vastly different, not just in terms of personality, but also obviously physical appearance than we were eight or nine years old. Because I guess the actor who played him as a kid just, you know, only played that one part or maybe a couple other parts. Uh, And I know he's been interviewed on documentaries. He's like a really 
you know, he's into Halloween, but for whatever reason, the uh, filmmakers, you know, they wanted like a real actor because this was a lot of scenes and shit. And I, I get it, I get it. But this is just like the weirdest version of Tommy Doyle that I could possibly fucking imagine. I mean, <laughs> well, it's like, yeah, and I, he exists. He, it's not like it's a real continuation of what you would have expected Tommy Doyle to be from the original. But as you said, that's just a little kid who's only in a few scenes. So what does that even mean? Yeah. But when you say it's the weirdest version, it's because he's symbolic of something, right? They they have it be Tommy Doyle because that's a name we know. And again, that's David Gordon Green wanting to reference everything he can from the original. But ultimately, he just wants a character to represent the, you know, the misguided nature of lynch mobs. And... Right. This kind of like, like I said, when I, I think in the review I originally wrote on Letterboxd about this, I said, like, you could definitely see this Tommy Doyle being like a MAGA Trump supporter, definitely an anti-vaxxer, an anti-masker. He just has like that vibe to him. He's just this guy who's going to be like contrarian and angry about any kind of authority, but being told what to do. And so it's just it's it's he's called Tommy Doyle, but really he's just there to represent like the thematic point David Gordon Green is making. Well, he's kind of such a thug, too. And that was such a nice little suburban house that Tommy Doyle grew up in in Pasadena. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. I get the boogeyman came and all that, but he didn't see Michael kill anybody. No, he didn't. Michael didn't kill anybody in his house. And I get that he would be traumatized from that experience. But like. When I see Anthony Michael Hall, we should say, too, he has a very um, closely cropped buzz cut hair. You know, he's wearing a sweater, um, not the most flattening, a flattering sweater, unfortunately. He kind of has a, looks like he has like a paunch, but he kind of looks a little muscular, too. Like, you know, Anthony Michael Hall, I'm assuming, is a good Irish kid. Um, the way he's physically looking in this film, he looks like a guy who would be like a bookie in a Boston bar somewhere. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or like a guy that would like, you know, fucking snap your wrist, break your legs for not paying your gambling debts. He doesn't look like somebody. And again, I understand, man. Like, you know, I grew up in uh, Indiana, not too far away from Illinois. Like there can be some thugs anywhere, even in the suburbs. I've seen them for sure. But, like, it just doesn't feel like anybody that would be growing up in the middle of Illinois. You know what I mean? Well, you just said something, too, that made me, again, think of one of the problems I have with this movie and where I have this, like, tough connection for it is this idea of every year Tommy, Lindsay, Lonnie, and and Marion getting together and and reliving this trauma. The first movie actually does, 2018, I mean, actually does something very smart in that it kind of finally verbalizes something that horror fans have long, like, joked about and talked about. In that, in today's day and age, is what Michael Myers did in the original really that not the, not to say it's not bad, not that bad, but he's just this guy who showed up and killed a few people on one night. Yeah. And they have some dialogue in the 2018 one, basically saying like, you know, in the era of school shootings right. and mass murders that are happening every day in America, would people even really remember this Michael Myers thing? And I thought the 2018 one did that very well to say like, yeah, you're probably right. Like maybe the town would have moved on from this big time. But then you kind of walk that back instantly in kills to say, oh, no, these people are so traumatized. And as you just pointed out, these kids who really barely even were affected by it, you know, they didn't see Michael kill anyone. They, they got out of the house before he was there. Why is why is Tommy so haunted in this as the way Anthony Michael Hall portrays him? It's very, very weird. Yeah, he's very haunted. He's very he's a very much a tough guy, which I mean, not to say the kid couldn't grow up to be a tough guy. Like we don't know what's happened over his life. Maybe he was in the military. Maybe, you know, maybe he toughened up that way. 
but it's like so distracting because it's like it, he's almost like visually he's almost like a dick tracy villain like he's so intense <laughs> seriously Trevor, he's so intense man with that buzz cut and mm-hmm. i'm sure it just had to do with the lighting of the movie and he's and plus they have him in this like hot ass cardigan sweater and he's probably shooting it in the middle of july or something but he is sweating bullets in this movie trev like yeah. legitimately and it just kind of like leads something different than like what you expect the uh the character to be like and um however i will say the the guy who plays the adult version of lonnie i kind of really like this actor and even looking at him great yeah even looking at him visually what do you think about this trope because this is what i thought i was like this probably would have worked if you would have swapped the two characters like if you took the guy playing lonnie had him play tommy and then had Anthony Michael Hall play Lonnie. I think that would have worked for those characters better. Yeah, I could see that, but I think Robert Longstreet is great as Lonnie too. I yeah, think, like is. I said, I don't, I don't need Lonnie in it, but I think the thing that ultimately saves that is getting an actor like Robert Longstreet, who has been. I don't know if you've watched like the Mike Flanagan like Netflix series, um, but he's no, like, there's still oh, on my list, but I haven't. Yeah, no. he's particularly like great in those. That's why when they when they cast him in this. Um, there's a little part of the horror community that's like, well, like that's great. They got him, and he's been awesome in these in these uh, Flanagan shows. So, um, and he pops up in like Doctor Sleep and stuff too. But yeah, he's a great actor, and he's he makes the most of a pretty underdeveloped character here, I'd say. Yeah. Well, I I do give props though. I, I, again, I don't mean to harp on the Anthony Michael Hall thing because as the movie goes on and the and the the kind of you know the things start happening like i'm like okay like you kind of like you said you kind of need this character to be this way i like that he drives a ratty old ford mustang i like that it looks almost exactly like the mom the one my mom had like in the 90s um i like the corniness of him carrying that baseball bat and i saw somebody saying that they hate halloween kills because the um Actually, just yesterday, some people on Facebook were talking about it. And one guy in particular who really hates the film, he was saying that it's just the dialogue. And he was just, like, off the top of his head listing the things. And one of them was Anthony Michael Hall saying, I'm going to take off the mask, look him in the eyes, swing on him with old Huckleberry and say, night, night. (laughs) (laughs) What's your what's your verdict? What's your, uh, you know, what what are you where are you at with the dialogue of Halloween Kills? Okay, so here's where I'll I'll be honest and I'll be fair, right? Because as you know already, and as you probably listeners have probably started together, I'm not a big fan of this movie. Like I, I, yeah. I really have a lot of issues with this one, but I will admit I have not rewatched this since seeing Halloween Ends. Right. And to kind of spoil this a little bit, I, I I like Halloween Ends definitely more than this one. But we'll talk about that more in a moment. But uh, kind of seeing Halloween Ends and getting more of the vibe of what David Gordon Green was trying to do with this town and everything, like some of the stuff I did think was like a little unbearable and like ridiculous in kills might play a little bit better for me now. And I, and I will say to that, like in terms of like the dialogue and being silly and everything, I never really had a problem with Anthony Michael Hall's performance in this. Like I said, I I wasn't sure I bought that they would be gathering. And I always, I think it's very, very silly that, you know what, every Halloween he goes to this like talent show and his talent is to get up there and, try to re-traumatize everybody by telling the story it's, it's actually very... a good performance though when he tells the story no, it, it, like... but it, that's what i mean he's he's good in what the movie's asking him to do and i think um yeah now that i've kind of more into like the the vibe of it i might i might dig a little bit more next time i visit it because one thing i'll just quickly say this is what the point i was trying to get to i don't like this movie but i do agree with you that i've never understood the vitriol that this movie got 
right. like we you and i have mutual friends who say like well that's clearly like the worst halloween and they and they hate it and i'm like eh, it's not good but like in a world where like resurrection exists and part five <laughs> right. exists yeah. and, you know I, I i i this one is like in the middle of the pack for me because it does a lot of stuff wrong but it's like it was never offensive enough for me to get as angry as many other people did yeah like i i really don't get it because it, it's like and, you know, there's all different types of Halloween fans. I mean, I'm a Halloween fan. You're a Halloween fan, Trev. Like, I mean, I'm sure we probably like different entries for different reasons or whatever. So, like, I don't want to just paint people with a broad brush. But, like, I just would think there would be not not everybody, of course, because uh, not everybody likes the same thing. But I would think there would be more of just the kind of general casual fans that, like, okay, you you buy a ticket, you buy a bucket of popcorn, whatever, you go to the theater, and it's like, if all you want to see is a guy in a mask hacking people up, like, this movie delivers in spades, I think. Like, even if you hate the dialogue, even if you don't like the story, like, there's some awesome kills. And I should say, too, I, I blanked out before the other characters was the, um, well, they're not in all three because they get killed in this one, but the, the husband and wife who dress as the nurse and doctor, like, you mm -hmm. see them briefly in Halloween 2018 while Michael's walking around the neighborhood. And, like, I don't know if that was intentional or just David Gordon Green when they were writing the script was like, hey, let's bring those people back and make them real characters. But, like, it's obvious they get the exact same character or exact same actors back. Like, even though, like, you only saw them one time and heard them in, like, a long shot. Like, there was, like, no real anything with them in 2018. He brought them back and had them, you know, be be a part of uh, get roped into the, the hunt for Michael Myers. And then they get mm -hmm. killed, you know. But, um, yeah, like, I love this movie. And I think the biggest thing I guess we got to talk about is Evil Dies Tonight. Like, the crowd just chants that nonstop. Like, when they're mm -hmm. trying to chase Michael through the hospital, which obviously isn't Michael. It's the other escape guy. Which, oh, that's another thing, Trev, too, is uh, if you didn't watch these back-to-back, -back, I would notice the, the escape convict guy or mental patient that falls off the building. He is in the courtyard with Michael. Yeah, the he's the one game. with the umbrella, right? I can't remember. I think so. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, so. yeah. I know well, he's I definitely, there. I, I definitely knew that. Yeah, I definitely, yeah. I, I definitely uh, was already aware of that. But yeah, evil dies tonight. I mean, I don't know. Like you know, you can never get too angry with a movie if it gives you something that you are going to be able to joke about and meme forever afterwards. That's mm -hmm. one thing I will say. And like that's the thing is like even I didn't like this movie. The evil dies tonight thing is is funny, right? It gets to a point where it becomes so incessant the movie that. Sorry, I don't know if you heard that like gigantic bang outside, but um, Michael's coming for you. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> he hears you getting that chant going. <laughs> but yeah, I think you know, I I certainly had a lot of fun in the in the weeks that followed her seeing this, like constantly saying "Evil dies tonight" and like the different memes of it. You know, "Evil pies tonight" and showing Michael holding a bunch of pies and stuff. Yeah. Uh, so like that's that that's actually one of the things I like about the movie is that it gave it, it, there's something in it to me that's very very funny. Like so I have I have no issue with that um and there's like a good there's a there's a section like in the middle of the movie it's it's when like tommy doyle shows up at the hospital and kind of like for like whips the town into this like mob frenzy where for me the movie actually hits this level of camp that i was really really yes. into yes. yeah yeah because i was gonna say like if if i'm gonna like like actually say like oh this is like a bad moment of acting but i mean not really bad moment of acting but just weirdly placed there's that scene where where, where uh, Anthony Michael Hall is trying to make it through the crowd so he can start running up the stairs. He's mm -hmm. like pushing, pushing, 
and right before he like leaves he turns around it's almost like he he forgot to say it or something he turns around it's like the fakest acting moment like not fakest but the most forced acting moment he turns around to yell at the crowd evil dies tonight yeah <laughs> and they, they get to chanting again i have to say like so i watched this movie you know trying to avoid spoilers or whatever I, I watched this movie first night uh, kills and ends were simulcast on peacock and that's how i watched them both uh, mm-hmm. So I watched it, you know, I watched the movie, like, Evil Dies Tonight didn't, like, stand out to me, like, oh, God, this is so terrible. Like, I thought it was it was going in a campy direction. And then, like, I think the first hint of, like, criticism was I listened to a, um, or I watched on YouTube a podcast uh, that the guy, Sean Clark, does. He's, like, a guy, big guy in the horror community. Um, mm-hmm. He represents a lot of people, all the actors and stuff that do horror conventions. And he does this show, The Thing with Two Heads. I like it a lot with Christopher Nelson, who he was the cop. He was one of the he, – he was the cop in 2018 who didn't want the bomb me sandwich. He just wanted to eat the pudding. Mm-hmm. And then he got his head turned into a jack-o'-lantern. And then he did the special effects for all these. He also did the special effects for uh, Fear Street. So he's made all the Michael masks for these. Um it was on that podcast, and they were kind of like, yeah, you know, because they're both Halloween guys, and Sean Clark's been involved with the franchise, too, producing documentaries or whatever. And, of course, they liked it, but I remember Sean Clark being like, I got to be honest, if I didn't hear one more fucking time, Evil Dies Tonight. And, like, from then, just the Evil Dies Tonight revolution took hold, and I was kind of like, I get it. And I get where, for a lot of people, they're not going to take that leap into wanting it to go into a campy direction or they're just going to think like, what is this? This is so corny. But I think really all this shit, just like the Anthony Michael Hall dialogue, uh, you know, old Huckleberry make you go night, night. I like, I, I, maybe it's me just like making excuses for a shitty movie, but I, I just see it all as intentional personally. Yeah. That's the thing is like, that's why I'm actually interested to revisit it now. I don't know that I'll ever come around to really like digging this movie or it being like a favorite of mine. I think that's, that's a, a long shot, but I think if I can watch it with a more of just a camp, uh, you know, sensibility in mind for the entire time. And especially like I said, like kind of connecting it to what he's doing with the, the next one. Cause you said a few minutes ago that you're surprised people didn't like it because if you just want to see Michael slaughtering people for 90 minutes, it's like right up your alley. Like, honestly, that's my problem with it. And I think that's why I like the next one is that that's not really what I was looking for. Ultimately, as I said, I was 2018 kind of reset the series, but it was kind of more. Then I kind of instantly was like, oh, yeah, you know what? Michael's not really that interesting. You know, so for this movie to suddenly just be like just another Michael slaughter fest and then this evil dies tonight thing. And I have a couple other. I'll just, I guess I'll just say it now so we can maybe turn this into our next discussion point. My theory about this movie, and I, I, I don't know that I'll ever have this proven because, you know, people never admit things like this after the fact. But we do know that when David Gordon Green came to Jason Blum uh, with his pitch, by all accounts, they pitched two films. Right. Mm-hmm. He had this like duology in mind. And then they, they hedged their bets and said, well, let's just make one, actually. Let's just do the one and we'll see what happens. And if, if that does well enough, we'll make this the second piece of this, this story. And then, as we know, the first one was this gigantic hit, which I, yeah. you know, bigger than they expected. And suddenly, like the next weekend, they announced, "Yeah, we're doing a trilogy now." And I, I, I can only assume that Halloween and Halloween Ends are the two pieces that David Gordon Green always had in mind. And suddenly, he had to fill in a middle. Suddenly, he had to create Halloween Kills. And I think, to me, Halloween Kills feels like the filler piece in between. And I even yeah. think Halloween Ends works better almost as a direct sequel to Halloween 2018 because there's some things that this one sets up that I feel like Ends just instantly drops. Yeah. So so this one does feel out of place to me. And it just – it ultimately felt like 
the only important thing in the movie happens in the last 30 seconds with the death of Karen right. and everything else feels like, God, oh, we're just watching more, more of Michael going around killing people. And I also think this, this of the three is the one I think is the worst perpetrator of really feeling like it can't commit to the idea of whether Michael is supernatural or not. Yeah. And I know I even read that they tested different things and they had different endings that like, apparently there was an ending that some people saw in test screenings that made it seem like very clear he's supernatural now. And they, they dropped that. So I don't know. It, this one just feels the sloppiest to me. It feels quickly thrown together. Yeah, like I, like, I fully agree. So I guess we should clarify. So they make, like you said, they make the 2018 film. Okay, this is all we're going to do. Oh, we're going to do whatever. So the original plan was to shoot them, not exactly back to back, but that Kills was supposed to come out in 2020 and then Ends mm -hmm. was supposed to come out in 2021. But because movie, you know, studios didn't know how to really release movies during the first year of the pandemic, um, the, you know, they, they had made kills, I believe, right before COVID, like right before, like maybe two months before or something. And um, they, um, they were like, okay, we'll delay it for a year, see what happens with the theaters, you know, whatever. And so, like, yeah, so like exactly with what you said, like, it's kind of weird that they made this filler chapter and then they just ended up having all this time in between shooting kills and in so they really didn't have to do a, a filler movie if you know what i mean <laughs> yeah which is weird but yeah like as much as like you said there are some things that are not tied together between kills and ends like there's so much weird little shit that is tied together uh really between all three of the films and i appreciate that but yeah like uh i i really like kills because the I, I like the Michael Myers character when we get to observe his behavior and try to understand him a little more. Not really even understand, but just observe his behavior. Like, I could go with a completely dialogueless Halloween movie where it's literally just following, Mike, following Michael around as he kills people. But, like, what's your opinion of that scene where he invades the home of that guy and that lady and he kills the guy and he's just, like, stabbing, like, the eight different knives into the guy's back as the lady watches or whatever? Like... Did you it's, think that was like gratuitous or did you think that was interesting? I mean, both, I suppose it's, it is gratuitous. It reminded me a little bit of, and again, and now anytime I think about these things, I wonder if, if this was intentional. Cause like after seeing ends, you realize how much David Gordon Green is willing to pay homage to previous films, not, not even necessarily just Halloween movies, but other Carpenter movies. And is these like little nods to things. And the gratuitous nature of that reminded me of the um, the Octavia Spencer death in Zombies Halloween 2, yeah. which is probably like the most gratuitous to me, like unnecessarily brutal death in the entire franchise. Yeah. And I felt like now I wonder, was he like trying to do his little riff on that? I think but, he uh, was. I really do. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, again, like I, I'm not going to be I'm not a prude who watches like a Halloween movie and is like, oh, I, I can't believe they're showing that. Yeah. Um, so I, that sequence was fine, I think. That's a sequence that I think is actually going to be helped by my now knowledge of the next one, because I think it's actually very interesting anytime you do this, and not many people do, the knowledge that one of those victims didn't die, actually, I always right. think is like very kind of compelling. The idea yeah. like sometimes slashers just walk away without realizing they didn't <laughs> they didn't finish the kill. And I think that'll be that'll be kind of uh, when you watch it now thinking like, oh, like just the suffering that she must be feeling laying there because she didn't die. You know, I think that's that's very strong. Yeah, but um, and then the wrapping. And, and, 
Oh, and this is, I was just going to say, and to be fair, like, again, it's not that there's nothing like like in this movie, and the stuff I do like tends to fall more into that campiness. And we mentioned with the previous movie, you know, the weird characters that David Gordon Green will populate the movie with. I, when I, I've, you know, I've been down to this movie since I first saw it, but um, I've always been team Big John and Little John. Because, again, <laughs> yeah, yeah, weird, yeah, like, weird, like, weird David Gordon Green characters showing up in these. That's that's my jam. I, I like that kind of stuff. So, yeah, so I guess we should – I almost accidentally just glossed past this. So there's a scene where Michael Myers comes home to his house. It's been repainted. Mm-hmm. It's been, you know, rehabbed, basically. And there's these two gentlemen living there. They're, they're actually a married couple. I noticed that this time they actually have wedding rings on. And um, – and I know this has been talked about a lot, Trev, but there was a little wrinkle I saw in this where I was like, I think this needs to be talked about. So these gentlemen, they're married. Um, they realize at some point Michael Myers is in the house. I mean, probably not. They probably don't think it's Michael Myers. They probably just think somebody because they had some kids mm-hmm. playing some pranks earlier. So they probably, but they are freaked out, but they're not like, so they, they both grab knives from the kitchen and they kind of do this thing. Um, they're both named John. Mm-hmm. And uh, they they kind of have nicknames for each other. They call each other Big John, Little John. And as they kind of work their way through their house, they're like Big John, Little John. Uh, nobody's in here. Yeah, Little John. Nobody's in here. Whatever. And um, there's a very and I only picked up a, on it this time on the second viewing. There is a um, a uh, a photo of them. Uh, the one guy we should say is Michael McDonald from Mad TV. I mm-hmm. Probably, I think his character was Stuart. Everybody knows from Mad TV. Another guy, I'm not familiar with this actor, but he, he's actually a pretty interesting guy. I actually would be interested in seeing him play some other roles. So there's a photo basically of them taking out a park with Michael McDonald sitting on the ground, and then the other guy is like kind of laying with his head in his lap. And uh, when after Michael kills them um, later on, when they go into the house. Um, uh, Lonnie's son and Lori's uh, granddaughter, they discover the bodies of these two men. And Michael has actually, uh, he kind of reversed it. Like uh, mm-hmm. he, he, like one guy was sitting up in the picture, but now it's reversed. But Michael actually positioned their bodies in a way to recreate like this loving married couple's photo. Yeah. Like, what did you think about that? Because we've seen in the previous movie, the 2018 film, he killed the babysitter and he put the the sheet overhead and the, mm-hmm. like as a, you know, and he put the pumpkin in the fish tank, which was weird, but like he actually like kind of like mentally processed who these men were. And like, even though he brutally fucking murdered them, he like kind of put them in this weird, like loving recreation. Like, I like that, man. I think that's something that a lot of the later Halloween sequels fell away from. And it's weird. Cause like all these movies were trying to like recreate the magic of the first one, which obviously no one can ever do, but yeah. everyone's trying. Right. But one thing that people like I get like a lot of I think later filmmakers, their problem was they just saw Michael as this this avatar of evil and just always scary because he's unknowable. But people forget that one of the interesting things about him in the first one was that he I don't want to call it playful, but, you know, he does put a sheet over his head and put glasses on. You know, the idea of like when the obviously the iconic moment where he, he you know, stabs Bob into the wall and he does the head tilt. That's him like looking at the body like, you know, in a very like inquisitive, curious way, almost treating like his, his murder like uh, like a piece of art. And there's a very, very direct uh, reference to that in the next one. Um, I like that David Gordon Green brought that back. And I like the idea of Michael creating these little, like, little tableaus with his victims afterwards. It's just one of those things that adds an extra level of bizarre mystery to him. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the film ends. Um, it starts getting, like you said, supernatural feeling with, mm-hmm. um, you know, like 
as far as because because Mike was off battling the town a couple streets over, uh, Karen goes back to the the Myers house because her her daughter is there. She she suffered a broken leg from Michael Myers, um, so she's going back to the tenor. She looks up, she sees the little boy Michael Myers in the window. Yeah, and it's like even the first time I saw this, I was like I was like you're not gonna be stupid, right? You're not gonna go up there. But she goes up there, but she's she's kind of transfixed. And I think this was the supernatural connection. So she goes up there. Of course, the little boy's not up there. Little boy Michael Myers is not up there. But then the real Michael Myers has survived, and he comes up behind her and kills her, and the film ends. Um, I have to say, like, I really like that ending. I know a lot of people hated the shit out of it. And I, I don't really understand why, to be honest with you. But, like, I thought we were leading somewhere with that, honestly. Well, I mean, if it had paid off, I guess that's the thing is, like, like I said, it's not even that I wanted this series to go in a supernatural route. Like, I think I would prefer it doesn't. But I, I just wish if you're, you need to commit to something. And I think you can feel my problem with Kills is that to me, I watch it and I feel a filmmaker who's unsure of the answers and is like unsure of what he wants to do and is trying to play it both ways. He's basically trying to make a movie that allows him to make two different third films yeah. like he's like he's 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 hedging his bets so he's like oh i can make a halloween ends that's about michael as a supernatural being or i can go back to like demythologizing him and saying he's human but that's what gets wishy-washy at the end for me because you said the moment where michael rises up even the way that's filmed it's filmed in a way to make it seem like this is some kind of like oh he's just gained more power or something yeah and like you know the camera spinning around as he's murdering all these people and then like you said you know and the karen, music yeah the music yeah. and then karen seeing the, the the little michael it's like what is, where does that come from like yeah that stuff just doesn't doesn't play for me because it's it's not that i'm that bothered that they killed karen i do think that's a shame for the third movie because judy greer was honestly one of the best performers in the series yeah but uh but it's 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 more the supernatural wishy-washiness of it that I wish was just like I wish all that was taken out and left on the cutting room floor, if they could have known what they were going to do and ends instead. Again, you never know with these answers how truthful they are, Trev. But um, I saw uh, one of the recent interviews for Ends. Uh, the the interviewer asked David Gordon Green, "Was there ever a version where uh, Karen Judy Greer's character made it to Ends?" And he said, "Nope. She was always toast and kills." Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Which is weird. Like, do you like, cause do you feel like, I guess we're jumping ahead a little bit now though, but do you feel like her death is even enough of a factor into ends to like justify that decision? Cause obviously I, I guess I can reframe that question to be more about kills. One of the big selling points and one of the things people liked the most about 2018 was the three generation of Strode women teaming up right. to fight Michael at the end. Right. And then yeah. you really kind of like, I, I thought it was like a big mistake of the next one to just completely bypass that by having Laurie in a hospital bed the entire movie, by sidelining um, uh, the granddaughter, Allison, with a really kind of pointless subplot where she's just part of the mob looking for Michael the whole night. And she does yeah. not do hardly anything in the whole movie. Yeah. And then obviously killing Karen at the end. Like, do you feel like that? Do you feel like that was a mistake to sideline the Strode women in the second one? And also, do you feel like Karen's death? ultimately even kind of matters to the third movie i don't think it matters a whole lot other than to to sandwich laurie and allison together mm -hmm. i think that is actually very important like i don't think you're gonna get that level of interaction between laurie and allison if karen is still alive in all honesty um 
I don't really have a problem with with Karen like dying. And I guess we should mention too her character arc too is that she was totally against any of the Michael Myers shit fighting back in like in 2018 and then like when she finally sees that it's real that he's outside the house and Lori tells her to go get in the basement and all that shit like I feel like she comes around to like being on a level of agreement with her mother. Mm -hmm. um and then obviously she gets involved directly uh to try and you know go make sure her daughter is safe and kills and that's kind of what ends up killing her like i don't know like i don't i know what you mean about the three generation of women but i i think for the same reason that they reintroduce all these characters like tommy and lonnie um uh lindsey uh ends up surviving the night she's the only one but marion as well gets killed um i kind of feel like the reason for bringing all these people back at whatever various points in the the series was then to eventually pare it down to a very small cast in the third film. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if like when they did kills they they were even really considering directly the Corey Cunningham storyline and making it a love story. But even if it wasn't, I think it was just always meant to be pared down to Lori and, and, um, and, uh, and uh, Allison, because honestly, even bringing Hawkins back, like, I think that was a late invention. Because, dude, like I said, in 2018, like, not only does he get stabbed in the neck by Sartain, but, like, it's gnarly when they run over him. Like, mm-hmm. it's it's kind of, it's obviously a dummy, you know, you don't see Bull Patton's head, but you see his legs. And the way the car runs over him, like, his legs, it's, it like, the, cam- the shot kind of is framed in a certain way to not be too graphic and to cut away quick. But the, but the tires clearly went up over his chest. It was just his legs, like the car went up against his legs. Um, but there ain't no way you're going to survive a car. I say, hey, up. he's got a slight limp and ends. Yeah, but come on, dude. You ain't going to have no ribs <laughs> if that car runs over your midsection, which I'm pretty sure it, that's what happened. I'm glad you mentioned something about Karen's character arc, too, because not to keep not to keep harping on a movie that I know you like, not to shit on it overly, but like... That's another thing that bring it, Trev, because I'm trying to understand the hate. I want to see the viewpoint. Well, and again, like it's not even that I hate the movie, but I'll tell you why I think it just doesn't connect for me, and why I think you know it's to me definitely the weakest of this trilogy is especially seeing what where he goes with the next one and feeling like usually David Gordon Green I think has a very strong handle on like his thematic you know thrust that he's going for, and another reason I think this one feels like it was quickly cobbled together and they were like struggling to think like okay what's the thing about this one and i remember jamie lee curtis doing all these interviews saying oh it's about mob mentality and we're seeing mob mentality now with things like you know the reaction to black lives matter and everything and they were trying so hard to connect this way to real world events but i think the, the karen character arc and what you just mentioned points to a thematic problem with this movie is that this movie is very much trying to say you know, there's a whole thing where they bring back uh, Charles Cyphers as the sheriff from the first movie, and he's got that movie. He's like, oh, now we're turning evil. He's turning us evil. Yeah. And and it's like, oh, the movie's saying, ah, oh, mobs are bad. But then you keep cutting to Michael brutally murdering people. It's like, I, I don't know. I think in this case, most people would agree this mob is pretty justified. Michael yeah. Myers is the kind of evil that needs to be taken out. So it's a, it's a weird to have a movie with Michael Myers where you're trying to say, but don't let Michael Myers make you as bad as he is. Uh, no, I think actually you're fine if you all want to kill Michael Myers. I think it's it's you're all good. Yeah, I got to say, just just because you brought it up, Trev, like I found that aspect in uh, it was really only one member of the cast. I saw it doing interviews. Could have been others. I only saw one member of the cast doing interviews, but I did not like uh, trying to correlate um, this film that happened with real life events 
Yeah. Um, it got tied into uh, Black Lives Matter. Mo- I'm sorry, Black Lives Matter movement. It got tied into January 6th later on. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm like, you filmed this movie in 2019. It's on record. Yeah. You can't say this is so topical. Like, yes, the movie came out in 2021, but you filmed it before any of this shit happened. And and these were events. In all honesty, these were events that nobody could have foreseen. The the dominoes of things that happen in society mm-hmm. um, with the. Uh, you know, police issues with election issues, like whatever you want to fucking call it. I found that tasteless. And like that one cast member, <laughs> I love, I love her, but <laughs> let's be honest. Yeah. She, she likes to kind of make everything about her sometimes. And she mm-hmm. likes to, uh, m- make movies about the boogeyman seem more socially relevant than they really yes. truly are. You yes. Know I, mean? I I'm with you. I also love her, but her whole like press, um, yeah, her like her talking about these movies throughout this trilogy has been uh, funny in like the wrong ways sometimes. <laughs> it's it's been beyond brutal. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but yeah. So, I'm trying to think, I don't think there's really any more we can really say about. It. I mean, it's super, super uh, divisive, uh, mm-hmm. divisive. But uh, yeah. I think that was like the most surprising thing about it, right? Is yeah. that. There was something about 2018 where even the people who didn't like it, like you know, like you yeah. were not super hot on it, no. but you would think I was that like. The road. Yeah, you're middle of the road, and I think that's everyone either... It seemed like nobody hated that movie, right? Everybody either really liked it or was kind of like, eh, it was okay, that was whatever, you know? And I think it just seemed coming off of that movie, and that's I guess that's one thing you can give David Gordon Green credit for instantly is that I feel like everyone thought for sure the sequel would be another, like, kind of easy home run. (laughs) And it was just like, oh, I'm sure it'll be, like, another, you know, fine kind of follow-up. He's just going to – it's the later the same night. It's going to be more of this. And the fact that it came out and, like, instantly was just kind of like, oof, the the negative vitriol so quickly. It's it's not often that that happens with a franchise where people turn on a sequel that that strongly that quickly. And I – honestly, I I thought even just the very surface level – comparisons to the original halloween 2 i thought that was going to like i mean to me it just was like not necessarily a home run but it was just like an easy hit of a film and i was Mm -hmm. surprised you know yeah but uh yeah moving along to like i feel like the reaction uh the surprise reaction to halloween kills was just a warm-up to what was going to happen with (laughs) halloween ends Mm mm-hmm so Halloween ends, I'm going to try not to go completely in the ins and outs of it, but it picks up 2019, a year after the events of the previous two uh, films. There's a boy uh, babysitting, uh, oh, he's not a boy, he, he states he's 21 years old, uh, a student, um, which is weird because, like, I, well, in the first few, I thought he was um, a high school student because the, the mom was asking him, like, oh, are you know where you're going to go? And he's like, oh, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm applying to places. But he tells the little boy, he, like, when the, the little boy's like, oh, he's babysitting, says, oh, you're scared of this movie. And he's like, I'm 21 years old. I don't get scared. I even mm-hmm. rewound it, looked at something, I was like, okay, so he's 21 years old. It's 2019. And this kid is a little shit that he's babysitting, right, Trev? Yeah. Oh, yeah. The kid, uh, this kid was asking for it. Yeah. Asking. So so the movie, as we know from the previous movies, Michael Myers is technically still on the loose in Haddonfield. At this point in time in the story, it's only a year later, and it's on mm-hmm. Halloween, so that's usually the day that he, you know, comes out of his hiding or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so the house gets broken into, or at least we think so, 
of course, they want you to assume it's Michael Myers. And I thought this yep. was a great sequence. This but, is a great misdirect, yeah. Yeah, but it was really just the little boy, the shitty little boy um, playing tricks on uh, the babysitter, Corey. And he kind of tricks him into running upstairs into the attic, and he locks him in there. And uh, just as all this is happening, the parents are pulling in the driveway, and uh, Corey is, like, yelling and screaming. He's, like, really pissed off. He's had enough of this kid's shit. And uh, he basically kicks the attic door, and the door swings hard enough. We should say too, the the, the it's like a three story old, really old house with like big stairwells and shit. So basically, when he kicks the door open, the kid gets hit in the face, and he goes like, I guess this it doesn't really lay out the geography because I think this is probably something if you look too good of a close up look of it, it would like not make sense. But like he basically knocks the kid back hard enough to where he falls over the railing. He falls three stories exactly perfectly time as the parents are walking on the front door and they see their like seven-year-old boy like fall and just mm-hmm. splat on the con well not the concrete but you know like the tile floor or whatever or the wood floor mm-hmm. it's actually a hardwood floor and it is a brutal fucking scene ain't it true it's i mean it's it's super brutal it's super shocking they they as you said as they're pulling up to the house they can hear Corey screaming i'm gonna kill you he yeah. uh, we also didn't we forgot to mention he's holding a butcher's knife yeah, because yeah. the kid was playing with one and Corey is holding it so the, the mother looks up and sees Corey look over the banister holding the knife and now the son is laying there dead with the blood sp- spilling out and yeah. she just screams what did you do and then cut to the opening title and i have to say like I, so I went into this obviously with pretty low expectations, not only because I didn't like kills, but because yeah. by the time I got around to watching this, I, I watched this after its first weekend, and I'll, obviously I'd heard mostly very negative reactions to this. So I sat down and watched this, and that opening was just fantastic. Yeah. And that cut to like the op- like the thing is I I was thankfully I'd have, I had managed to avoid a lot of spoilers for what this movie was and what exactly it was that people were upset about. And that and when that sequence, you know, obviously you think it's a Michael Myers sequence and then you go to the the opening credits and it's not. And it's like, what was that? Like instantly I was like way more intrigued than I expected to be at this point and thinking yeah. like, OK, well, now now I have a feeling of I don't know what this movie is and I don't know what rules David Gordon Green is playing by anymore. And that's the best thing you can do with a movie like this. Yeah. So we jump forward from that point in time to present day is three years later. Now it's 2022. Uh, Corey is just living the. Kind of a similar life, kind of guy, aimless guy in his mid-20s because he's really been ostracized. There's been a lot of questions. He was cleared because it was an accident the way the boy died. But just like anything, everybody's convinced that he is actually a child killer. And um, it's really unclear. And the second time, I really try to figure out what the kind of relationship is. But he works at a junkyard, you know, uh, auto garage. And uh, there's a guy there who's like either his stepdad or his uncle. I can't tell. <laughs> I, I took it as stepdad. That's, okay, that's, yeah, yeah. So his stepdad Ronald, um, you know, and like, like he he's just got him working. It's like pretty much all he can do in this town. You know, he's not going to. Seems like he never went to college. He never did whatever. Um, he's just kind of stuck in this town with this reputation is like and they set up the fact too with a pretty cool opening narration from laurie that the town kind of ate itself after the events of 2018 and there's some nice details there too because they show yes. like how there's been some murders in the town and some suicides yep and the uh, we see a woman hanging outside uh, her home and if you uh, if you're paying close attention that's actually yep. the mother of one of the kids that was killed in the 2018 one and she's put on his halloween costume to exactly to herself yeah. and hung herself like pretty much in public in her front yard mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah like i really it's like again with the opening being great and this i was digging it um so basically yeah Corey's working in this junkyard he gets bullied by some kids because he won't buy a beer for him um these are the infamous 
band geek bullies that everybody criticizes so much and it's like Mm -hmm. again you're either you're either trev i think you're either in for the david gordon green ride or you're not because anybody else would have made that just the football team bullying right and it's and it's and it's two pronged too because it's not only is it just interesting to make them the band and it's kind of funny and it makes them more like memorable but also as i saw someone else say and I, i have to agree is that shows how low on this of a status Corey has right. right that in this town even the band like bullies him so that's actually a good character decision well i think also too and the thing i haven't seen one person really bring up trev so like okay like he the he stated in dialogue in 2018 he was 21 years old so he's 24 years old now assuming mm-hmm. that these four kids there's two boys two girls assuming they're still in high school which they are but assuming that majority of people in high school are under 18 um if he were to lay a hand on any of them and especially with his reputation like yeah he would be thrown in jail if you were to punch these kids and everybody like oh i wouldn't take shit from band geeks i would just be. but like you're not looking in the context of the film these are minors if he would do mm-hmm. anything to them like he would be so fucked and shit up a creek and, yeah. I, and obviously he doesn't come from money where like there's no situation where he could just buy you know his parents can't pay for a lawyer to bail him out most likely so I don't know like I just and really all the bullies did physically in the beginning when it was like they pushed him up because he he was holding a, a a glass bottle that he shattered when he was squeezing it too hard because he was tired of them mouthing off to him and they push him he falls back he cuts his hand mm-hmm. um I, again like I I should preface like my biggest fear was that this movie is going to be nothing but Lori honey Michael all over town yeah. for 90 minutes and I was yeah. just dreading that because I feel like we've gotten that so many times so when like Lori pulled up and like she started interacting with Corey and befriends him and takes him to the uh, ER, you know the whatever health clinic or emergency room where her her granddaughter Allison works, like I was like I was breathing such a sigh of relief at this point in the film trap because I'm like thank God we got something different. <laughs> you, know I mean? mm-hmm. you know I agree. Yeah, it's, uh, the movie takes its sweet time getting to Michael, and I yeah. think that's exactly what pulled me into it. Of I just didn't really know what this movie was doing, yeah. and once I started to realize what it was doing. It was something we had, had this series had teased before, but never delivered on to this level. And so yeah. I was all in. So basically, uh, uh, you know, romantic relationship starts to blossom. Um, I have to say, uh, um, Allison, uh, Andy uh, Matichek, uh she really has to pursue this young man hard, doesn't she? <laughs> Well, this is another thing I see, uh, you know, including some friends of ours really criticizing this relationship and the, and the way it's kind of depicted in this movie and how quickly it happens. Um, I'll try to defend it a little bit and just saying that, again, I think you can make some forgiveness and concessions to it just being ultimately, no matter how pretentious what David Gordon Green is trying to do with this or whatever, it is a slasher movie. And slasher movies are certainly full of, um, you know, half-baked or very uh, accelerated character arcs right. and character relationships. So that's not like even like that surprising to this kind of slasher film. But also, she does have some dialogue later where she says that it's because like I keep seeing people say like, "Oh, she just instantly falls for him. She instantly falls for him." She says later in the movie that actually she's had this kind of like fixation on him from afar, right? Ever since she ever since she heard what happened to him, and she's she's felt this connection because of what he went through. So like when he's brought to her in the hospital. It's, it's honestly just her first opportunity to finally, like, lay into something she's been thinking about. 
And also, too, I mean, this is kind of just surface level. I was thinking after I, you know, watched Kills again and then watched Ends again, Trev, but I haven't seen one person, like, even remotely bring this up. But, like, did you notice at all the physical resemblance to Corey and her previous boyfriend in the first two films? Um, uh, I wouldn't say their faces are exactly like, but they're both paled uh, skin guys. They both have that kind of curly hair. Uh, they both have freckles, like... I don't know, like, like I was like, oh, like, I think David Gordon Green kind of intentionally cast that to be like, okay, this is this girl's type physically, you yeah. know what I mean? And they're two broken people, you know? Yeah. Like, yes, they they instantly fall for each other, but, hey, so do Mickey and Mallory in Natural Born Killers, remember? Like, he just yeah. shows up to deliver some meat, and he sees her, and they become a couple instantly. So I think that's, like, what David Gordon Green is doing here, saying, like, there's this, there's this like, connection between people who have lived through some kind of trauma and are broken from it. Yeah. And, like, I thought there was good dialogue, too, because there's, like, one scene where, where he says, you know, like, like, like uh, uh, there's an incident, I guess you should say, there's an infamous uh, dancing scene at a bar. And I've seen a lot of complaints that they were dancing for 28 minutes straight, Trev. Again, if you watch the 2018 film, it's, like, visually, it's very similar to the, the high school dance they had uh, where she was there with her previous boyfriend. Mm-hmm. But uh, afterwards, uh, there's an incident in the bar where Corey goes up to get a beer and he actually sees the now alcoholic mother of uh, the child that he accidentally killed. And she's like, oh, you're just here having a good time, huh? Have a beer, have a dance. Yeah, well, my son's dead. And then like pretty much like that just snaps him back into the reality that he's been living the last three years that he can never be a normal person ever again. Mm-hmm. So he storms out of the bar. Obviously, Allison tries, you know, and, and he even calls her out, like, how come you weren't there for me or whatever? And she's just like, you know, it happened so fast. I didn't know what was going on. So, like, he really is looking for somebody to, like, protect him from these situations, which obviously nobody can, especially still living in this town. And I thought there was some great dialogue, too, where, um, uh, I, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but uh, she's like, she's like, I know what it's like for everybody to look at you and think they know you. Yeah. And, and then he says, basically, yeah, but they look at me and they see a monster or a killer and they look at you and see a victim. So, like, again, like, I know there's been a lot of criticism and everybody has their own taste, their own opinion, their own tolerance for whatever. But I don't know. I I think it, it, the relationship made sense to me. I'll just put it that way. Yeah. And if you examine some of it on like a deeper level, like you just said the thing about how he's looking for someone to protect him. And, you know, his first interaction with his family is Lori showing up and, and kind of saving him from these bullies. And then yeah. this like bonding moment where her him and her together slash the tires yeah. of the bullies. And then, as you said, like later in the film, like Lori just sees like one kind of like suspicious thing with him. And instantly she's like treating him as this evil being. And so yeah. this woman that he thought maybe could be like because his, his own mother is treats him like garbage. Yeah. So maybe he like saw for a moment there he saw Lori as like a potential surrogate mother, but no, she turns on him too. So everything with like Corey's like descent, I think, is actually really well tracked in this movie. Yeah. So what happens basically is he walks away, he storms off from that bar scene, and the bullies run into him. They they pretty much kind of clumsily attack him, and the the kind of more physical the bullies pushes him like off of a bridge. Probably it's probably a good twenty feet drop, I think I would say. You know, he he gets knocked out, knocked unconscious. The bullies are like, oh, shit, we might have killed him, whatever. They speed off in their car. And then pretty much at this point, uh, Michael Myers emerges. We don't see him at first, but he pulls Corey into the sewer, which I got to say, I was like digging the kind of gothicness of this. But he digs, he pulls him in. Corey wakes up the next morning. Michael Myers grabs him. He looks into Corey's eyes 
and pretty much releases him. Like he, they kind of do like a flashback thing where like I kind of took it as Corey's life was just flashing before his eyes. But then mm-hmm. in the context of the movie, as you see more, it kind of was almost like Michael was looking into his soul. Yeah, this is another thing where, and it, it, see, here's where I think it's handled a little bit better, and I think this this pulls it off in a way that Kills struggled with. You can read this moment as either supernatural, like an actual like transference of something, um, or you can just read it like Michael sees something in his eyes that reminds of himself, or you can just see it like, you know, Michael just, for whatever reason, just doesn't kill him. But yeah. the, the, the point is, getting away from, like, the fact that Michael releases him is something Corey can't like help wondering about. So you could say like, Oh, either he now has Michael's evil inside him or mentally he thinks he does because of being released. Yeah. So, yeah. And there's also two, you can read it two ways too. I think too, Trevor, because like, it's kind of a weird setup where like Michael's kind of grabbing him through the crack in the wall. kind of thing. (laughs) So like he gets out, he runs out of the sewer scared as shit because he realizes he's come face to face with Michael Myers. And then there's an evil wino. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> who confronts him with a knife he 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 tells Corey, i'm the real michael myers and he tries to stab him and then there's like a struggle and very accidentally Corey stabs him mm-hmm. but but you know instead of like doing again like just with the bullies he can't go to the cops because of his reputation he throws the knife away he he runs back to allison to like make it all better and i think it's pretty much this scene uh where uh or maybe it's the scene after where Laurie sees him, but like pretty much the reason I think she thinks he's evil is he's he's literally recreating the Halloween nineteen seventy eight shots of when she <laughs> saw Michael out the window, and mm-hmm. he, you know he also from that point on where he encountered Michael or he or he killed the bum, however you want to look at it, he has he has this ability that Michael has to literally sneak up behind people out of nowhere without them knowing did you notice this trip yes yeah for sure. i mean there's a but i love that right like the yeah. moment where you see him like behind the bush is great you know like that's you know sometimes you can roll your eyes at like these direct like yeah. visual cues but i think they're doing it in a very clever way here um because he's not michael right so right. it's what what the movie's trying to tell you about him it works quite well he also is somehow um you know he got like the spider bite like peter parker and spider-man yeah. he doesn't need his glasses anymore either yeah yeah um so it's like, yeah, so and a lot of people would say this film then goes on the same kind of arc that uh, John Carpenter's uh, Stephen King's Christine does, mm-hmm. which, I, I don't know, I just see little nods. I don't see it being as direct as some people. I mean, David Gordon Green actually, I think, has been kind of like, because I read an interview with Rowan Campbell, who plays Corey Cunningham afterwards, and apparently they, they, they he admits that that was definitely something they were thinking about. Yeah. And like, because Rowan Campbell has actually said he's a huge horror fan, and Christine is one of his favorite movies. And so he was very excited to kind of be doing a riff on that. And the fact that he is Corey Cunningham, and it's, you know, Arnie Cumming, Cunningham, mm-hmm. you know, it was definitely there. And I, I think... I think I even read that David Gordon Green, like the first time he sent the draft of this one to Carpenter, he, I don't know if you read this as well, Goat, but he asked Carpenter, let me know if this feels too Christine. Mm. And and Carpenter said, like, no, I like it. I like what you're doing here. So Probably because Carpenter's like, I don't even remember Christine. That's the movie of my hate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Outside of uh, Memoirs of a Visible Man, mm-hmm. <laughs> John Carpenter's like, fuck Christine. I did it for money. But, uh, yeah, so it's like basically then the, the rest of the movie is um, there's a cop that pretty much is sexually harassing Allison, always wants to date her. She doesn't have the interest. Um, so, uh, you know, there's a confrontation between him and Corey. He lures 
Corey lures the cop into Michael's lair, and they they do like a tag team duo. Because we, here we we find out a big shocker, and again, this is very controversial. Trev, Michael is very weak now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how dare they? How dare they make Michael a decrepit old man? But uh, yeah, and he gets you know Corey beats him up, and apparently that's the moment that the Halloween franchise ended, according to a lot of fans. So well, I keep hearing too, like well. Well, how do you do that when he was he was unstoppable in the previous film? And I'm kind of like, do you remember all the shit that happened to him? <laughs> he got pretty fucked up. Like I have this is this is what I mean. I half agree with that as a criticism because I again this is where I do think that I I kind of agree that on a visual sense and on a thematic sense, what what the last movie is setting up at the end doesn't seem to follow to this Michael. And that's why I feel like this movie would work even better if it was just a direct sequel to the first one. Yeah. If like we hadn't seen him since the fire and like You're this right. is where, you know, he wandered off after the fire. But I also agree with you that if you need to, it's not that hard to say that he had this burst of adrenaline at the end of kills. Mm. But then over the course of four years, all that damage took a toll on him <laughs> and he's well, been living in this pipe and like, of course yeah. he's going to be weak and you know, yeah. And also too, we had the, the, the tiny nugget of mythology that was forcefully, shoved down our throats in the trailers for kills i believe it was kills it might have been 2018 i'm not sure but one of the films they wanted you to know that laurie said that the more he kills the more he transcends mm-hmm. so if he's hiding in the sewer and barely barely surviving and he's weakened from whatever if he's not killing or at least not killing on a mass scale like maybe he is getting weaker yeah and the movie has a moment that pays that off where he gets a new kill and you actually see this kind of like something overtake him right his body starts to shake like he's getting a little bit more strength back yeah he kind of like goes from being like less hunched over to he starts standing up straighter kind of thing so like yeah so like and here here's why i don't have a problem with it and then and then also too you know they they team up for one more kill to go kill the doctor and the nurse uh that uh allison works with because uh she got passed over from her promotion because the other nurse was sleeping with this old ass doctor and I, I felt that was a little bit of David Gordon Green kind of, you know, oddness, mm-hmm. quirkiness, whatever. <laughs> but I really like that scene, like, a lot. I like Corey killing in his little scarecrow mask and uh, whatnot. But I, I feel like once they did that kind of tandem kill together, like, I feel like Michael was pretty much uh, back in terms of level of strength or whatever you want to call it. I think he was back to, like, original Halloween 1978 strength. like Yeah. And I also read that scene like I think I like that scene a lot, too. And I think you can also read it like because the fun, like the kind of funny way to think of the movie. And I've definitely seen, already seen a lot of memes about it is like these two is like a partnership now and like a mm-hmm. mentor mentee. But you can also just read it as like Michael still kind of doesn't really care about Corey and maybe he's just yeah. following him around. And that's the kind of the way I read it. Like I I, I can read it that he's eventually going to kill Corey, right? He's just oh, kind yeah. of, he's using him to essentially at yeah. this point. Yeah. And I, again, I don't know if it was just the, the, the newness of it, the difference of it. Cause I've always felt that there was a, a, a you know, some sort of evil that was a hold of Michael and gave him power and whatever. And I just liked the, the, whatever, like, like, honestly, I really liked it when they showed him all week. Cause I mm-hmm. was like, that, that popped the idea in my head of like, what if we got a Michael Myers movie where like, he just like was legit, a 70 year old weak man but he still wanted to kill so it almost became like a diehard movie where like every kill he struggles with it and he still kills because you don't need much physical force to kill somebody with a knife like mm-hmm. i would kind of like to see a movie where he's old and he's weak but he's still killing but yeah 
But yeah, like I, me personally, if you're gonna like end it and kill the guy off, like I liked him coming back to a somewhat more, you know, human level of strength. And pretty much, yeah, like the rest of the movie is Laurie realizing Corey's going bad, and then eventually, I would say, uh, he gets to the point where he's confident enough killing where he doesn't need Michael anymore. So he he beats up Michael Myers. And he takes his mask, and he becomes the new shape. And I really liked him as the the temporary new shape because, like, I thought mm-hmm. he kind of like the way he looked in his overalls and shit. He reminded me a lot visually as, of uh, Dick Warlock as the shape in Halloween too. And I like how it's clear, like, he looks like Michael, but his murders are different. Like, yeah. there's like more angry brutality to them. Yeah. Um, I think the junkyard like slaughter sequence in this so is good. honestly one of the best set pieces in the entire Halloween franchise. Yes, it's it's great with some great kills and just like the, the yeah the whole way that's filmed. The DJ death is great. Uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Corey's brief run as the shape. Yeah, and it, it all ends with him showing up as the shape to Laurie's house. He's gonna kill Laurie. Because Lori is, um, I guess we should say too, it, it gets to the point where Corey is sleeping in the abandoned house to where the little boy died. And he's mm-hmm. also sleeping on the, the bloodstained spot where the little boy died. Like, what did you think of that touch? I thought that was a nice touch. And I'll tell you what I really liked here. And this is where, and this is where I kind of fell in love with the movie. Like I was enjoying it. Once I realized like how much David Gordon Green cares about like what Carpenter had done before and what he was and how he was trying to pay homage to it, not just and also bringing in elements of Christine, but um, years ago there's this great horror documentary that I love. I watched it like multiple times called The American Nightmare, and there's a moment in that that I always remember and I've I've referenced this myself and like told people this so many times over the past twenty years, where John Carpenter talks about the two types of fear or the two types of horror. And I always remember this is John Carpenter's like it's it's him being interviewed. It's a talking head segment with him. And he says, you know, there's two types of horror. There's the horror that is like come when you're in a tribe and it's what's on the outside of the tribe. You know, the thing that's attacking the tribe. But then there's the horror that's inside the tribe. You know, it's it's the horror that's inside you. And there's someone in the tribe that's bad. And I've always remembered that because it was such a great definition of horror. And then David Gordon Green puts that in in Laurie's mouth here where she appears in the house and she gives that same speech, like a more elaborate version of it. But she she gives that speech to to Corey. I'm like, well, that's that's no coincidence. Like, obviously, David Gordon Green had seen that as well. He'd seen Carpenter talk about that. And he decided to, like, verbalize that in the movie through like Laurie. And I love how that whole sequence it's not even clear if Laurie's really there right. or if that's like Corey having like a hallucination of her. You can either read that she's like now kind of picking up some of Michael's abilities to vanish or Corey's just seeing her love that whole thing. It's just, it's, yeah. it's so good. Yeah. I don't think there's a definitive right or wrong answer, but like when I, the first time I saw it, I took it at face value that Laurie was really there, but I'm like, mm-hmm. is this just like a weird coincidence? She's holding this paper airplane because like, yeah. how would she know about the paper airplane thing that he had with the little kid who died? And then like, I seen somebody say like, yeah, that's like, that's the cue that she's like not really there. And I'm like, I mm-hmm. kind of agree with that now because the way the, um, uh, when Corey jumps up and she's suddenly gone, like the chair is still tilted against the, the wall where it's yeah. like, she would obviously need to put it down to get up and jump out. Cause then he runs to an open, uh, a window, which is the way he gets in and out of the house. And she's, you know, she, it's like, Oh, she took off. But it's just like, yeah, I have to agree. She probably wasn't really there. And that was probably mm-hmm. his subconscious talking to himself. But yeah, like, so it's basically Corey as the shape goes to kill Lori. She shoots him. You know, he's hurt pretty bad. Um, he's probably going to die or bleed out. And, uh, you know, he, he brings up the obsession with Allison and says if nobody, 
can have, you know, if I can't have her, and he means nobody can, and he jams the knife in his neck. Uh, Lori pulls it out, uh, and then as soon as that happens, Allison, um, uh, because Corey heard Allison pulling up to the drive, you know, driveway with her rattly car, whatever they established. And so, like, yeah, so she walks in, she sees her grandmother holding the knife that she thinks killed her boyfriend, so she runs away. But on her way out of town, she sees the radio towers burning, which Corey, like, obviously wanted to burn down, and she knows. And so she goes back, and in the meantime, the real Michael has shown up. He reclaims his mask. I don't have whatsoever a problem with this final battle, and I understand people say it's not nearly as good as the 2018 final battle, and I, I agree. It's like whatever, but I'm like, we kind of already been there, done that. So, like, I don't know. Just story-wise, character-wise, beat-wise, I didn't have a problem with the, the final fight. What did you think, Trev? I... I, if you're asking me, do I mind the final fight on a on a, like a filmmaking level? Do I think it's not exciting enough? No, it's fine. I, I think it's a good fight. I like when um, Allison runs in, and it kind of again, it kind of gets to like a camp level at that point that I kind of yeah. enjoy, where they're like you know breaking his arm down on the table yeah. or anything like that. Um, I I like that stuff. My issue is more that I was so into the Corey storyline, and really I was just I ultimately thought like what what I love about this movie, and I do love this movie, because um, I've thought I I, I kind of walked away from it thinking like I, I liked that, I, and then I then the next day I thought about more. I was like I really liked that, and like the more and more I've sat here and thought about it, I'm like yeah I really really liked that a lot. It's yeah. kind of like when you let it sit with you, and uh, it, it, more and more of it works for me. But it's it's the Corey stuff, yeah. and it just felt too bad to me. And I understand it, right? I understand that this is the the practicalities of movie making, and I'm sure this was kind of forced on David Gordon Green by the studio, and this is what they they needed to build to, and that's clear in how they marketed it. But because Michael is such a non-factor through the rest of the movie, and because we already had the great like battle between Laurie and Michael in 2018, I, I kind of didn't need it again. I wish this movie could have had the 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 guts to just stick with the Corey storyline. And honestly, be kind of a passing of the torch to make him the new shape moving forward. So that's like that's my problem with the end is that uh, by the time you get to it, I, I'm kind of sad to see Corey go. <laughs> and I yeah. don't care too much anymore about Michael versus Laurie. I mean, Corey was definitely going to die. I forgot to mention that he got shot twice by Laurie. He jammed the, the knife into his own throat. And then when Michael shows up to grab his, pick his mask up off the floor, like Corey kind of springs back to life. Like he's clearly dying, but Michael's like, hey, fucker, payback time. And he snaps Corey's neck. I would have liked it if they wouldn't have done that and they would have done the thing where like they killed Michael, but then Corey's body was missing, missing, like calling back to the 1978. That's film. honestly, that's funny you said that because that, that's what I told my friends. I said, like, my perfect ending in this movie. And, you know, I do like the coda with Laurie and um, and Will Patton at the end because it's, yeah. it's nice to see Laurie have a happy ending. But at the same time, I said, I think if, if you had had me make this, if you had asked me to, like, reshoot the ending in any way after the parade sequence where they destroy Michael's body, I would have had them come back home and now Corey's body is missing. Yeah. And you just kind of replicate that because I, I think that would have been an awesome finale. But Yeah, they kind of kill Michael by not, not a thousand cuts, but, 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 but death by many cuts. They... And, you know, Gloria gets him pinned down with knives and uses the fridge to pin him down. And she slits his throat, slits his uh, veins in his wrist. So he, he he technically, I think his death is from bleeding out. And they prayed mm -hmm. his body through Hatterfield. Again, people had major problems with this. Did she send out a group text? How the these people? I'm like, 
to me, that was just movie time. Like, I think they were driving them through town for like an hour, hour and a half. And plus, it's mm-hmm. Halloween night. I think a lot of people would be out and calling each other. Like, I don't think it, Lori personally or even Sheriff Hawkins, which, by the way, that was a great scene, too. Our favorite sheriff, Sheriff Barker, shows up. And uh, the local cops are like, you can't just parade his body through the town like this. This isn't the way, you know, uh, things work. And then the sheriff goes up. He goes, tonight it is. Yeah. <laughs> like, I love that like, guy. The, the whole parade sequence is over the top, but it's over yeah. the top in a fun way. Yeah. I mean, if you're if if you're watching Halloween 13 or whatever this is, and it's you can't you can't enjoy them strapping the killer's body to the top <laughs> of the car and taking it to like a giant industrial grinder i mean come on it's it's fun you know yeah so they take him to Corey's junkyard where there's this big grinder that they've established previously and they you see it full on you see it. i mean mm-hmm. there ain't no coming back from this like you see his head bash apart everything from the grinder yeah yeah there are sometimes like again i, I mentioned texas james massacre 2 earlier where uh, toby hooper blows up leatherface with a grenade there are, there are some times where you can tell the filmmakers like you 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 fuckers ain't following this one up you know yeah. I'm I'm putting a pretty definitive ending on this yeah so I mean that's really the end like you said there's a nice little coda where obviously uh, now Lori is uh, more open to having a relationship with Sheriff Hawkins they know each other for years you know even if it doesn't become super romantic it's just a very companionship they both need each other type way I mean you know, uh, Allison leaves town finally, you know, she the mm-hmm. movie and she's driving out of town. I mean, I just, I know a lot of people are like, you can't end it this way. I thought, you know, we, I thought in most ways it was a perfect ending for me personally. Well, I, I really do love, even though like I said, I, I, I probably would have ended it differently to have more of a, a tease of perhaps Corey still being out there. Yeah. That said with the ending you get, you, you have to take it on its own, you know, uh, take it on its own level. I love those final shots. Like that yeah. was a, that was a pretty genius idea to replicate yeah the the shots of the the home like that you know and everything yeah. but this time it this time it represents safety right. whereas the last time it rep, or in the original film it represented the danger of him still being out there exactly and this time it's all in the, the very not just daylight but very warm beautiful mm-hmm. daylight and the last shot is uh up in her her study where she was writing her memoir on her laptop there's that table and the it's beautiful the light is shining through the window shining on his mask um yeah and it's like, and yeah, and it's pretty obvious. Like the the read there is like, it's not the mask isn't even scary anymore, right? Yeah. There's nothing to be afraid of anyway. It's just sitting there, like nobody cares anymore. The one thing I will say, and maybe they sh- it was one of those things where they shot it different ways, Trev. But like, the way we, you know, we her narration we hear throughout the film is actually her writing her memoir, and mm-hmm. I, you know, I love the um, the final like whatever line she has is evil never dies. It just uh, changes shape. Mm-hmm. I feel like that line was would really be more in line if Corey had disappeared at the end. Yeah. I also think they would have been wise to maybe have that be the tagline of the film on the posters and maybe yeah. prepare people a little bit for what they were getting into. But... Yeah, I, I mean, I kind of understand the reaction people have because the marketing literally was nothing but... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Lori and Michael are fighting in this kitchen. You're gonna, and I was just like, man, this trailer looks bad because I mean, not that whatever was being staged looked bad, but I'm just like, that's all this movie has going for it. You know what I mean? Yeah. In retrospect, that trailer was entirely built out of the last like five minutes of the movie. Yes. <laughs> but I don't know. Like, I kind of needed. Um, I mean, not that I needed less Michael Myers, but I needed less Lori versus Michael Myers because we kind of mm-hmm. got that like in spades in the 2018 yeah, film. no that's what i mean that's how i feel but but all at the same time 
I'm not going to criticize the movie for not taking a giant swing because, you know, you can say, oh, it's too bad it couldn't go all the way. It's too bad that they had to shoehorn this in. At the same time, this is still 85% of a giant swing that a lot of other filmmakers wouldn't have tried. Yeah. And, and like, reading, you know, like I said, I read this interview with Rowan Campbell, and, and this is where I knew that David Gordon Green was, like, legit with this. He talked about how when, when David Gordon Green cast him, he said, just so you know, you should probably stay off the internet. Uh, I don't want you to promote the movie. We're not gonna we're not gonna market you as we're not gonna tell people you're like the main character. But also, I just have to warn you: a lot of people are gonna be very mad about this. A lot of yeah. people are gonna hate you. They're gonna hate your character, and they're gonna hate what we're doing. So David Gordon Green always knew he was making a movie that was not going to please everyone, and I I gotta give him credit for that. Like he did go for it. Yes, he wasn't allowed to take it all the way, but you know, again, it's the thirteenth movie in a horror slasher franchise yeah why not give him credit for at least pushing it this far which is what i loved about it it's not at all what people were expecting and that to me is what made it great yeah like because he kept kind of subtly teasing to trevor last couple years that the third one's going to be a lot more like halloween than you think Mm -hmm. uh meaning you know the the i guess deviation or from the norm or whatever and like yeah like like i kind of like this is probably way too fanboyish, but I actually uh, read a quote from him where he even said he was originally going to even make more parallels to uh, Halloween 3 in terms of like they were going to actually have a sequence or a finale or something that took place in the Silver Shamrock yeah. Factory. And yeah, that, I that too. We would see that, if, you know, just like they make the pumpkin witch and the skeleton uh, mask that they would eventually start making Michael Myers mask too. And then, like, I like, I'm curious. Like, that would be a very interesting thing to see, like, in the world of the Halloween film, that the Michael Myers mask be mass produced like that. But I, yeah, I somewhat agree. But I also agree with what the reason he said he didn't do it is that he did say like that was almost like too fan servicey, yes. where it's yeah. just there for people to like applaud, basically. And that's that's true also. So yeah, no, it is. It, and there's more than enough moments where you can bark like a circus seal if you want to. <laughs> because of the the fan service and like it's weird like I, i'm sure you're probably like this too it's like some fan service is good too much is always bad and sometimes the wrong kind of fan service can be really bad well and I, so the reaction to this movie definitely showed me like why it is always risky to try and do anything different and would be brave and go i just want to read you um I'm not going to say the name of this person, even though it's it's like a an anonymous name, anyways. But yeah. on a on a so this is when I knew what the problem was, like this fan base or just fandom in general, right? Is I was on bloodydisgusting.com and I was reading an article about the Halloween Ends novelization, mm-hmm. which apparently pushes some of these things even further, right? And I just want to read you a co- one of the comments in the in the messages that to yeah. me was pretty indicative of like the reaction. <laughs> yeah. to this. Feel free, because I've read some great shit the last couple of days. <laughs> so this person said, "Why in the world would anyone want to read this book?" The last Halloween Jedi ends was probably the most disappointing horror movie I've ever seen in my life. What was so damn hard to understand that the movie was supposed to be about the final showdown between Laurie and Michael. That's what everybody wanted. We didn't want Michael in the movie for 10 minutes or the final showdown to only last five minutes. Michael didn't need to be fed homeless people and we sure as heck didn't need Corey. All we wanted was two hours of the cat and mouse game between Laurie and Michael plus Michael killing about 20 residents of Haddonfield. And then this last line is just the the coup, de, the coup de gras here. He says, this wasn't the platform to try something new or to express whatever artistic creativity David Gordon Green falsely thinks he has. Wow. When you see someone actually say, this isn't the platform to try something new, that's when you know, oh, no, this, the fandom is broken. <laughs> you know? a, a, film, a film. And I want to be say, too, I want to say, too, like, I, I am, like, kind of, like, and it's a 
topic for another day, but I am sick of the overblown discussion online about toxic fandoms, toxic fans, toxic whatever. Like it's just it's just reached like a weird like it's almost like screaming toxic fandom to me at this point is like screaming evil dies tonight over and over. <laughs> but like I gotta say at the same time to be like, how dare you do something new with part thirteen? And, yeah. I, and I'm going to say this, Trev, like, I know it, a lot of people had a shock to their system with this film. I don't even think what they did was really that radical with departure, personally. Well, I know, and that's the point I want to get to, is that, so it's it's a, it's a enough of a departure from what we had before, but the thing, the thing that people are, seem to be ignoring is that it's still completely thematically in line with what Carpenter was setting up in the first one. Yeah. In that, like, in this movie, I, what I thought was really interesting, and this kind of reaches that high camp level again, so I liked how in this in Halloween ends, how Haddonfield now feels like Twin Peaks, yeah. where just like everyone is broken, right? Everyone, mm-hmm. and there's that great it's moment. Like one of my favorite scenes in Ends is when they run into the dad of the boy at the bar playing pool. Yeah, and he gives that speech about seeing Corey, and his and the speech is so over the top and so overly dramatic. But then you realize, oh, that's what every line that Loomis had in the first movie was like. And basically, yeah. everyone in Haddonfield is Loomis now. They're all yeah. constantly having these like philosophical discussions about evil and. That's what this movie's doing, right? The movie is like still examining this question of what evil is. And if Michael was this like unknowable evil in the first one, Corey is the inverse of that, right? Corey is the inevitable evil that is caused by circumstance. It's like nature versus nature. Like Michael is nature evil and Corey is nurture evil. And I like that this movie is kind of examining that like as like, here's the opposite end of that spectrum. Which one's more dangerous? Which one's worse? Yeah, and I, I just, like, I don't know, like, I guess on some level I had a tiny bit of sympathy, you know, for the original Michael Myers, because, like, when he's a little boy and he kills his sister, like, you don't, like, you kind of feel like he's been a victim of something, but you don't know what. Mm-hmm. I feel like we get to see, like, obviously it's a different character, it's Corey Cunningham, not Michael Myers, but I feel like we get to see in this film uh a trajectory that got him and again it's a horror movie it's over the top it's grand spectacle it's whatever it's not completely realistic it's not like watching a fucking you know netflix serial killer documentary but i i I thought it was interesting watching somebody slide into where michael had become instead of just you know i don't know just somebody becoming a killer one day just because and like to me that has value in a in a franchise like halloween but i guess like people just they don't have time for that shit you know what i mean well and it's like also you just said that it's not that dissimilar from what they did before this movie is finally almost paying off something that the series has teased before and never yeah. followed through on you know i love i love the end of halloween 4 and still yeah. one of my regrets is that halloween 5 doesn't pick up on that and make yeah. jamie the new killer and we've seen this in friday the 13th where twice they they teased that Tommy was the new Jason and they would never yeah. follow through with it. Never did. And I like that this one finally does it. Like even in the course of just one movie, we get a new killer that is, that is like, you know, a byproduct of the original killer. And I, I, I love that. And I would have actually been down for, you know, two more Corey movies after this. Like, yeah, but obviously that's not what they wanted to do, but I would have <laughs> yeah. been for it. You know, I really would have, t- like, I kind of wanted him to, like, you know, disappear too, Trev. And, like, you'd be like, does he have the same supernatural or whatever Michael mm-hmm. has to be able to survive these injuries? But, like, also, too, like, I kind of liked it in a way it did play out as well. Because I liked it that we created a new Michael that didn't replace the old Michael. Like, if you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? It wasn't like, oh, we got to throw Michael away now. Like, I mean, they both had their end, you know? Like, I, you could have even done, like, even more labyrinth ending if you really wanted to. 
where like Allison realized what Corey's become, and then like while Lori's fighting off Michael, she also like Allison has to fight off Corey at the same time. Like that could have been something interesting too. But it's just like I don't know, man. It's just like I mean, I'm I'm down for it. Um, you know, another recent horror film I saw and liked a lot was Barbarian, and like. Mm-hmm. It's just, I I get it. I'm an old man. I've been around too long. I've seen too many of these movies. I know the tropes. I know the whatever. Whereas, like, anything that's even a little bit of a breath of fresh air, I'm going to look, actually, admittedly, a lot less critical at that, and I'm going to enjoy being surprised. And that's the thing. That is the thing with the Halloween franchises. Earlier, to to bring this full circle, I talked about this franchise feels kind of broke on a certain level. And I was thinking about... Why is it that I do want them to take these kind of bigger creative risks with Halloween? But then with like Friday the 13th, you don't, right? right. Like when that guy says like all we wanted was two hours of, you know, him killing presidents <laughs> of Henfield. I think like, no, but then if, but then if you ask me, what do you want the next Friday the 13th to be? I go, well, don't overthink it. It just needs to be Jason murdering counselors at Camp Crystal Lake, right? Yeah. But then I saw this, this, so I, this is not an idea I came up with, but I saw like someone else say this and I, I had to agree Halloween, because in the very first movie, John Carpenter made Michael this like faceless avatar of just all like evil, right? Yeah. He he set it up to where you can't just like let this become a, a generic slasher. Michael is like inherently more interesting than that. Michael is inherently more of a question mark than yeah. that. Um, like you know, Jason is very clear, like he's killing people because of what happened to his mom. But Michael is like is unknowable. And so that actually presents an interesting challenge to these filmmakers. And I get why so many filmmakers have been like, well, let's take these swings. Like let's make it about a cult now, or, you know, let's go back and show his like redneck origins or right. let's, you know, do like what, you know, what David Gordon Green has done. So yeah, with Halloween, take these big swings if you can. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think you hit the nail right on the head there. That original concept by John Carpenter is kind of like there is more to that and there's more mystery to that than we typically get and that's why everybody's like kind of like you know like with with all the like we we're talking earlier all the different continuities that he created i just look at it all as different mythology of michael myers of the blue mm-hmm. man like i don't even really see it at this point as one timeline being correct and the others being incorrect you know what i mean like well like the, the again like um I said it a moment ago about how I think this movie straddles that like, is it supernatural or not line a little bit better? Another like great small example of that. And I'm, I, I'm guessing you noticed this too, is when the cop goes into the, the pipe mm-hmm. and he's got his flashlight out and he's looking around and you see that like Michael's mask kind of looks like it's in the wall. Like, uh, yeah. You know that was yeah. awesome. Like, yeah. That rules. Like it's almost like is Michael's like, and just his evils like infesting this town now. Right. It's just like, he's like forming in the town almost. I thought that was so weird. And I honestly didn't know what quite to make of that, but I just, like yeah. I said, I love that whole sewer layer. And a lot of people are like, Oh, he's in a fucking sewer. But it's just like, yeah, but when you see it, he's not just like laying in a pipe with a bunch of shit and piss rolling by. <laughs> like this is almost that? like, so it's like it's his third time in the franchise living in a sewer anyways you know yeah. he was in there in part five and he's in there again in the zombie movies like this he likes it so um one other thing too like there was that scene early in the film where uh, Lori's having fun at the grocery store and then that lady confronts her and it's the sister mm, of yeah. the lady who got stabbed in the neck with the fluorescent tube and she's like oh you know, she can't talk anymore and her husband got killed and the the sister of this woman blames Lori, and it kind of comes up a couple more times that the town blames Lori because 
I forget how they phrase it, but they basically say that they they te- the, the town believes that Laurie teased and provoked Michael. Yeah, you riled up like a, a crazy person or something. They say, but it's it's almost like they almost act like she was like flashing her boobs to him and bullying him, and like I'm I'm just curious, and like I found that interesting. I kind of wanted to like know more about that, like why the town thought that. I think you can, like, again, read it because it's basically like the town is doing to her what they're also doing to Corey, right? Yeah. And it's that Michael has gone missing and, you know, this town needs a boogeyman. This town needs somewhere to put their hatred, to put their fear. So they're putting it on this kid, but they're also putting it on Lori because, yeah. you know, she was the one who – it's kind of just that, like, they're mad at her for being right you know, she yeah. spent years telling them he was going to come back. Nobody listened to her. And then he did. And so for them, they need to throw the blame somewhere and they'll just throw it on the one woman. Oh, she said this happened all the time. She always said this was going to happen. So she must have had something to do with it. Exactly. Just, I don't know. So, I mean, I, if you want to, if you want to pick these things apart a little bit, I yeah. think, the, you know, like it kind of annoyed me that at the beginning, you know, you said it's 20, it starts in 2019. And the mom even says, like, when she's talking to Corey, she's like, oh, well, you know, our son, he's like so scared of ever since that Michael Myers thing last year. And there's this whole like thing with Lori then saying like the town has just been so traumatized with this. And you're kind of thinking, well, I mean, one year later, they're already having, they're just back to having Halloween. Yeah. Like on, on that night, on the 2019 Halloween, especially, don't you think the town would have maybe called off all Halloween events and really been on the lookout for Michael if he's if he's yeah. been missing for this past year? Like, that's kind of weird. But again, you just have to accept these things. Yeah, it is. It is like it's it's a weird kind of I don't know. Like, that's why I kind of like the um, the uh, I think it was Halloween six. They were like, nah, Halloween's been banned <laughs> in mm-hmm. the field. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so you know, we kind of, you know, talked about it a little bit as these three films interact with each other and kind of mix together, you know, in a glass like that. Uh, now that you've seen the breadth of the trilogy, and this happened to me in other series of films when they wrapped up or trilogies or whatever, uh, what is just your overall thoughts of it as a trilogy? As a trilogy, it's complicated for me because I am happy after not liking Kills that I can walk away now and feel like, Overall, I like more of it than I don't. I like two of the three, and I'm I'm going to buy you know the trilogy Blu-ray set that they're inevitably going to do. Um, but I still I, I will need to revisit Kills. Like obviously, like I said I haven't yeah. seen it since watching Ends, and I, I would be interested to think to see what I think of it now, sandwiched in between the two movies I like. But I do think that Halloween 2018 and Halloween Ends are both these like singular, really strong Halloween movies. But then I think when you put it together as a trilogy, it feels a little sloppy to me. It feels a little yeah. messy because, as I said, I don't think Kills works as a great bridge between the two. I think a lot of what is happening in Ends would almost work better if you took Kills out. So I, I'm not mad about it. I'm not mad about the whole thing because I ultimately I have two more Halloween movies that I like than I did five years ago. Exactly. And that's more than I could have asked for when they decided to reboot this whole thing. So, yeah, not a, not a great trilogy for me, but two really good Halloween sequels. It's really weird, too, because with the, you know, at least in my lifetime, um, well, not my lifetime, I've, I've been alive the whole time. But, you know, I was a baby when parts one and two of the franchise came out. Uh, I The first uh, Halloween film I saw in the theaters four, and then it, that got followed up very quickly with part five, which was disappointing to me even as a kid. But other than that, I really haven't lived in this era of like really quick, fast, rapid Halloween sequels. So like mm-hmm. I actually kind of find that fun because I think a lot of people actually forget, Trev, there's actually four years in between H2O and Resurrection. 
Um, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people think of it like they came out quicker together than they did. Um, so I, I just like the whole experience of the trilogy, honestly. And uh, I kind of had like a different experience than you, obviously. So I was pretty like middle of the road. Hey, it's okay on the first one. Love the second one. Um, I won't say I love the second one. I, the first time I saw it, I really liked the second one. Um, and then I saw Ends and I just loved it. Like, I mean, the first time watching, I loved it. And then kind of doing a, a really rapid fire rewatch now, watching each one again, uh, you know, three days back to back, whatever. I just appreciate like even a lot of the holes and things I didn't really appreciate or, or I just see the connective tissue like it just it all works for me now mm-hmm. and uh you know I don't know if ends you know even just doing granted I watched it a week apart but watching it twice in a week I don't know if ends will feel that great to me every time I watch it now because you know what's coming <laughs> if that makes sense mm-hmm. but I think it it like in my mind like even watching it a second time like I it, it was more even gelling even more to me the second time um i you know i just it it might not have a super super high rewatchability factor because you kind of know where it's leading there's no you know there's no suspense now if Corey can pull out of the tailspin or not um i don't know like i just i i have to say like i'm very impressed with this as a trilogy and i think it works better as a trilogy because like um it's so weird and i tried not to bring it up because jesus how, how much can we talk about fucking star wars but I feel like the way we talked a lot about the Star Wars sequel trilogy and exquisite corpse storytelling, mm-hmm. I feel like this trilogy was that, but it wasn't because it was the same writers pretty much and the same director every single time. But it feels like an exquisite corpse storytelling because like yeah, they all you know three feel different. You know what's kind of what's where that's kind of similar to is like the Saw franchise, mm-hmm. right? Where that was exquisite corpse. They were like coming up with the new story every year, but it was the same writers doing it. Right. Like it was those writers every year going like, what do we do now? You know? And that's kind of what David Gordon green is doing. So that's, that's probably still ultimately better than completely different writers coming in each time and, and trying to pick up the next piece. Yeah. Cause at least, you know, as a writer where you were trying to head, right. Exactly. I'm sure when he wrote 2018, he didn't have all the beats of Halloween ends, but he was probably yeah. already thinking about this Corey thing, you know? Or, or like even if it wasn't completely fleshed out he was probably like because he clearly was going the way with the town being so influenced by michael's legacy he mm-hmm. had to be thinking what if there's a character that gets caught up in it and turns evil themselves you know what i mean yeah so now i'm gonna put you on the spot goat i didn't yes. i didn't tell you about this ahead of time but i want to throw you throw this at you halloween surprise yeah it, it is a halloween surprise it's literally a halloween surprise because i want to ask you Let's say Jason Blum came to you tomorrow and said, "Okay, now we, you know, we're still in the Halloween business. We got to make more Halloween movies." But David Gordon Green has just pretty effectively put an end on his series, as we mm. said. You can't really follow that up. What would you do? Like, what do you do next? Because this is a series where <laughs> what we're faced with now is that the next one is going to have to be either another like, oh, it's a sequel to the first one again, or another reboot. So, what? How, where would you follow this? Okay, you think you. You think you're putting me on the spot, but you're but you're not because I've been thinking about this all day. And I was even thinking like, <laughs> should I try and write this just to see how fucked up it goes and put it on the internet as fan fiction? But there there's only you know, all roads lead to this. All roads lead to that. In my mind, all roads lead to this. Well, first of all, again, we got to jump back to my mind, like we were saying before, Halloween six, seven, eight. In my mind, I can kind of blend them together to all be in part of thing. So I'm going to do Trev halloween 
season of the witch and hear me out uh i don't know the specifics of how you get the ball rolling but a similar setup kind of like tom savini's night of the living dead 1990 he ropes you in thinking you're going to get the exact same whatever but here's where the here's where the twist comes in play you think you're just watching a remake of halloween 3 season of the witch we get to uh the silver shamrock company and um I don't want to divulge all the details because I want to save some things as a secret. But uh, basically, when the 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 thing where um, you know they Dan, Dan Chalice uh, uh, gets the uh, tour of the Silver Shamrock Factory and he sees all the different toys Connell Cochran has made over the years and whatever, we get to a a mannequin of the the butcher of Haddonfield, Michael Myers, and. Uh, and everybody's like, oh, wow, look at that. Whoa, you know, so this, so now Season of the Witch, this version of Season of the Witch, I should say, takes place in Michael Myers' continuity. And Connell Cochran, or the character that would replace Connell Cochran, I don't want to give everything away, would, would then say to our, our heroes, say, but you don't have to worry about Michael Myers. We have him safety, safely locked up in the basement right now. And then everybody chuckles, and it's a fucking whatever. But we unlocked the uh, Silver Shamrock Conspiracy, which this time the mask, we have the same Halloween 3, the pumpkin, the uh, skull, the witch. This time uh, they're not going to turn your head into brains and bugs. They're going to, the the signal is going to, um, and it all happens of course because this is 2022. It all happens within an app on your phone which you activate while you're out trick-or-treating. It actually turns you into a pretty much like a 28 days later ravenous zombie, whatever. And where it comes into play is at the end when everything goes haywire at the factory. Uh, Michael actually is in the basement. And they've been like not only is Michael in the basement, but a lot of other Halloween monsters who all share the same kind of uh, supernatural magic that has made Michael invincible through the years. They're, they're all their essence and their life force and like literally their DNA and their blood is what is powering all the the chips and the silver shamrock mask, okay? And so at the end, Michael does get loose and pretty much like they can't stop the big giveaway. It's happening all over the country, if not all over the world, but definitely all over the country. And pretty much like our main survivors have to survive not only Michael Myers, in a factory but then they have to like they get out into the town and it's populated by monsters running amok so it's like you have like a dual threat and pretty much it ends in an apocalyptic fashion where michael myers is like you know out in this world of basically creatures running amok murdering people and then pretty much the halloween uh, franchise goes into a post-apocalyptic direction <laughs> <laughs> so that's my you want to talk about big swings that's my big swing Okay, okay. So I have an idea, and mine, mine plays it probably a little safer than yours does, but it also feeds off of something you said earlier, so you might appreciate this, because I was trying to think of, like, the the problem you face with this series now is that you either do another direct sequel, or you either reboot it, or you do another direct sequel to the original, but you're, go, you're always going to face a problem now where if you set it in modern day, you have to consistently deal with the fact that Michael's an old man, right? Yes. So we kind of just need to return to this idea of Michael being this kind of, like, unknowable you know, is what is he, right? So this this is very similar to something you said earlier. I would actually start it, and maybe shades of the film or urban legends here, but I would start it in like a college campus or like a private school, maybe a private school similar to the one in H2O, and a class that's teaching urban legends. And the teacher is lecturing about the legend of Michael Myers. 
And you could actually have a sequence where kind of in a jokey way, he's talking about how like all these different things people have said about Michael Myers. Oh, there's been like rumors that he was controlled by a cult. There's been rumors that he was after his like his young niece. Uh, there was rumors that he, you know, he confronted his, his sister. But some people say she wasn't really sister. And basically you have a jokey sequence where he's talking about all the previous films. But then someone says like, yeah, but isn't that ultimately based on like that's that com- that story comes from reality somewhere. Right. There was like an original case. And you can basically insinuate that this is some this this might be tied to the continuity of the original film. And as you said, every other sequel, every other thing that happened afterwards was like a myth that was built on top of that. Mm-hmm. And so the teacher's talking about it. And then the rest of the movie is the shape shows up at the school and the shape starts murdering the characters. And what you are kind of insinuating to the audience is like the at first you want the audience to believe this is like a Roy Friday the 13th part five kind of scenario where someone has been inspired by this like class by Michael Myers. And now they start dressing up like him. But the twist here is that by the end of the film, you know, in subtle ways, so that I want to leave this very, very ambiguous. Every character who the movie makes you think is probably the person dressed up like Michael ends up killed off so that by the time you get to the end and, you know, you can, you can still leave it very, very ambiguous about how did this happen. But it's clear that like none of the potential suspects were behind that mask. Uh, You never answer the question but you leave it very, very where the audience can walk out thinking like, okay, so somehow they just, they summoned this spirit. This like this, this legend of Michael Myers appeared again. And that's who the killer was. And I think that also allows you to follow that into sequels where now it's just Michael Myers is this thing, this like this boogeyman that kind of can appear anywhere. And now you're, you're no longer tied to Haddonfield. You're no longer tied to Laurie, but you still have Michael as your character, which clearly the audience wants. So I think that's what I would do. That's what I've always wanted, honestly. Yeah. Is 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 I wanted to uh, get past this Haddonfield shit because I mean it was great it was awesome it it's had its run it was a lot of fun but it's like we need to tie it back more into this the general idea of Halloween and the mm-hmm. mysteries surrounding Halloween and like if anything like I know they try to do it with like Halloween three like you know when they try to make it an anthology series like like just do that but like just make it that Michael Myers exists in this world where like there's this, all this dark evil magic that is surrounding Halloween and like almost like a situation where anything can happen on Halloween night. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think that's the thing I, I, I still see people like, uh, you know, all the big horror sites have just in the last week published their editorial saying now is the time for Halloween to finally go back to being an anthology series like Carpenter's plan. And it's like, no, nah, I'm sorry, folks. Like I get it. <laughs> I, I get, I, I agree. We all agree that it should have been from yeah. the beginning. But we're too far gone. You can't get to part 13 and go, okay, let's try this again now. Sorry, but Michael is a part of it now. So you need to be able to take wild swings, but I do think Michael has to be there. It's like that anthology series that you want and you crave, it's like it's out there, but it's called Trick or Treat, and they didn't do anything with it. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. It's like why would you want to saddle an anthology series now with the title Halloween? Why not just do something different? Yeah, like, yeah, I agree completely. And, like, honestly, like, I'll just ask you this. Everybody says, well, you know, the only reason Halloween 3 ever had a bad time was not that it was a bad movie, not that it was a bad idea. Just everybody thought Michael Myers was in it because they saw all these trailers and they all thought Michael Myers was going to be in it. So it just would be better off if it was just called Season the Witch. I'll ask you this because I think you have an appreciation for Halloween 3. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I love it. Um mm-hmm. Do you, if if you could have one way or the other, would you want it to be Halloween three, or would you just want it to be Season of the Witch? It doesn't really bother me as it's Halloween three. I think that makes it a very, 
I I agree with the sentiment that it would have it would have found its audience quicker if it was just called Season of the Witch. But I also think the fact that it is Halloween three is what's made it this kind of like consistent oddity yeah. that is constantly debated and constantly talked about. So I think that's what's kind of fun about it is that that is the only franchise that has like that weird of a one off just huh? like installment yeah. in the in the middle of it. So I kind of like that it's Halloween three. It's just a like a weird piece of franchise history. I mean, I love it just because I I always loved Halloween. You know what I mean? The original film, mm-hmm. and I'm just like I just love that it's tied to it and. And, and it's like, okay, cool. If it was just Season of the Witch, like, would have Tommy Lee Wallace have directed it? Like, if yeah. it, you know, if it didn't have that Carpenter association. Because the only reason the movie really even got made was for financial reasons. Carpenter was trying to hang around, but he didn't want to go through the experience he had of Halloween 2 because he didn't really like it, you know? So I'm just kind of like, I don't even think that movie would have happened on any level if it wasn't Halloween 3. So Yeah, and, and if, it it. Had, if it had, maybe it would have an audience, but it would just be like, it would be another, like, one of those horror movies from the 80s. But it's still talked about today and still, you know, brought up as often as it is because people want to talk about how it's like the weird Halloween movie. Yeah. You know, we wouldn't get Joe Bob Briggs constantly bitching about it right. <laughs> if it wasn't <laughs> Halloween 3. So Exactly. So yeah, so that's that's our uh, that's our trick and our treat for you this year, listeners. I mean, I really don't mm-hmm. think there's anything more we can say about these three films. Uh, no. Just like you know, I'm looking forward to like kind of like rewatch them. Like I think definitely next year, I think I'm going to do the like the I'll do the quadrilogy. I'll do one uh, Halloween 2018 kills and then ends. I I think it'll be fun because that was the only thing I didn't do on this rewatch. I kind of do this rewatch quick because we kind of did this as a surprise thing um it might be fun to watch all four together but uh now can i ask you go having walking away from it now being very pleased with it and liking it as a trilogy and, and being really impressed does this make you are you like excited for david gordon green doing this exorcist trilogy or what like what are, what's your thoughts on that i'm like i think i think when you go to the exorcist seeing the problems that um uh, Paul Schrader and Rennie Harlan did with trying to keep that going like like I'm for it because I think David Gordon Green is probably going to give us the most original and unexpected take that could be on it I think he's going to do the same thing again right I think his first one's going to be very much like a here's another exorcist movie and then the next two will be like what you know yeah like I don't Put it this way, I'm not looking at it in a negative way of like, oh, you can't touch the Exorcist, it's going to suck. I'm not, I'm not like looking at it, but like at the same time, like I don't really have any, like I'm like, I'm like, boy, like I know this guy's probably, you know, swinging pretty, pretty big right now, thinking, you know, because he finished this trilogy and all this. And I mean, despite what anybody says, I mean, they've all been financially viable. I know everybody's like, mm-hmm. oh, they shouldn't have put kills and ends on peacock oh with these grosses would be so high whatever it's like well they got money to put those on there so these films are and by and every copy they're ever going to sell and every box set they're ever going to be in these 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 films were very financially successful yeah don't, don't forget that but i think to recreate something forget about the money you know equation out of it trev just to make something that's going to be pleasing to a exorcist fans b just general horror fans he 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 must have an idea that he's been thinking of for 20 years or else i don't think he would attempt it i'll put it that way so mm-hmm. i want to be pleasantly surprised but like geez that's a that's a big hill to climb up 
Yeah, I kind of have this like it's it's that for me, and it's also I don't know if you watched the Exorcist TV show. I didn't, but, that... but I read a bit of like the synopsis and what it was about, and like I that shockingly actually seemed like it was a pretty good show. Yeah, that show was great, and like that's the thing is like that show surprisingly enough managed to kind of secretly sneak a direct sequel to the movie in there, and did it very very well. And like to me, it's like I already I already see that as like the sequel that I didn't realize I wanted but got. And yeah. so it's kind of like it's kind of becoming a Halloween thing now, where there's going to be multiple Exorcist continuities now too. And uh, I feel like it's uh, to me it's like it's too bad that the show, which never got like a fair shot, is just going to be even more overshadowed by this. Um, yeah. But yeah, but but walk i after seeing kills i was kind of like oh man i really don't want this guy touching the exorcist yeah. and, now, and now after seeing ends i'm kind of more like okay well now he's got my attention again and now i'm in, i'm intrigued to see what he's what he's doing with the extras and i think it is kind of it's it's definitely i know it's the same thing they're all doing now but i it's 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 kind of cool that alan burston's coming back you know so oh, i'm yeah. intrigued yeah yeah that i think that's probably like the one thing that kind of pricked my ears up a little when i saw that that she was coming back but it's um... interesting to hear that she's coming back but linda blair is not like the fact that yeah. the mom is coming back but not reagan i don't know it'll, yeah so whatever he's got planned i don't know it'll be well it'll be i mean this is um this is no slight against linda Bear, linda blair i love linda blair um been kind of actually working through some of her back catalog of films that she made in i guess probably the 80s or whatever i like her a lot but she's not really a um i guess a currently active actress so i kind of mm-hmm. get that mm-hmm. whereas ellen burson like i mean you know is I mean, Ellen Burstyn is just, like, on a huge level of, like, really, like, I would say almost, like, acting royalty at this point. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So I get it. But, yeah, I mean, that's, this was a, I should say, too, I should give credit where credit's due. You, like, you just popped up out of nowhere, like, hey, it's been too long since we did a show. Would you like to do this? And uh, I was really, look- I know we just agreed on this the other day, but I was really looking forward to do this. So I want to thank you, Trev, for uh, giving me this Halloween treat. Yeah, of course. I, I know. Like, I feel like anytime we go a while without doing a show, um, the people who follow us on Facebook probably think we had some massive falling out because <laughs> yeah. people who I, I think I've said this before in the show, but people who, who might not know our, our real personalities might think we're always like really fighting on Facebook, whereas right, that's right. kind of that's kind of just our thing we do. But uh, yeah. But yeah, it was definitely. I definitely felt like it'd been too long since we had done something. I was, I was so happy that I liked this movie, so I could contact you about it and say, "Let's do this." Yeah, and it just, you know, it just was a nice timing. Like if you would have said in December, it'd be like, "Hey, let's do this," I've been like, mm, "I don't know," but this, this was the perfect time. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so we don't. Me and Trev, we don't fight to the death with swords. We fence. <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. We play with safe fake swords, but we still stab each other. By this point, we both know what each other's going to like think on something, probably, and we're we're ready to we're ready to go at it at a moment's notice. Exactly. But always always with love. Yeah. So oh, the sun is down, Trev. I'm seeing it right now. I mean, it's really dark over there because you're on a different time zone. But uh, mm-hmm. I, I think I'm getting ready to get some ghouls and goblins knocking on the door here in a second. So we're gonna have to jump off here and give some candy out. All right. Oh, candy. Are you got the big candy bars over there? Are you one of the rich houses? No, we are not one of the rich houses. <laughs> and he, here's why. I eat about 75% of the Halloween candy before it gets to Halloween time. So <laughs> if I got the big bars, I used to be a big bar household uh, when my dad was buying the candy. Uh, mm-hmm. after, I think I think around 1994, he said, fuck this fun size shit. He would buy the big size candy bars. And I got to say... I gotta say, I mean, we're talking back to the kids of the 90s. They really weren't that blown away by it. Some of them were. Some people were kind of like, eh, okay, it's a candy bar. <laughs> I don't know. 
I always do the thing of just like I put my hand all the way into the bag and drop whatever I have in there so that they can't see how shitty the candy I'm giving them is. Yeah, so yeah. I, yeah, yeah. But when I give the little candy, and it, and it, you know it all depends on how often kids are coming, and and since I've lived at least over here, I really, really didn't. Get, well, I, I guess I lived in apartments in LA, so that makes sense. Nobody would come up. But um, yeah, since I lived here in this town, it's, Halloween's been pretty dead. So. Mm-hmm. I, there's there was one year I was just like maybe like like it was getting towards the end and a little kid came and I had like maybe two and a half bags of candy bag I just gave him a full bag of candy yeah <laughs> I didn't even well, like bother you. to like pour it out I just was like there you go here's how I'm different than most people give out candy and I'm sure this is like definitely like the op the exact opposite of what other people would say yeah. um, I save the best candy or I give the best candy to the older trick or treaters. And I'll yeah. tell you why, because I'm sick of that bullshit peop- that people say where they're like, you should stop trick or treating when you're like, you know, 12 oh, yeah. or whatever. It's yeah. like, I, you know what, if you're 38 years old and you want to trick or treat, more power to you. And because you're brave enough to go out there and do it, despite society wrongly saying that you shouldn't, I'll, I'll give you the best candy. If, if, a, if a 40 whatever some man in his 40s came to my thing and he like had a legit costume on mm-hmm. yeah you have to have I, a costume yeah. yeah i would give him like i'll be like dude you're the best you know what yep. I mean? <laughs> everybody's um, a kid on halloween that's yeah that's and and like i would always give extra candy too uh if 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 the parents that were walking with the kids the parents were dressed up i would be like okay i'm throwing in a couple extra for your for your mom or your dad give them some too you know mm-hmm. so yeah I love it. Um, I really don't have the desire to dress up anymore. Um, I think it's just because can't really trick or treat. Like I don't. Never mm-hmm. really was a big Halloween party person. I guess I would if somebody actually invited me to like a good, cool Halloween party. I probably would dress up. But yeah. But I just I just love this time of year. And you know, just like we have the Christmas creep, people like you and me, Trev. I think we've been doing the Halloween creep since September first. <laughs> That's right. So, yes, I want to thank you, Trev. And obviously, you're going to want to listen to that fine roster of uh, Trev 3K shows like uh, Days of Future Podcast, Examining the X-Men, and also Failure to Franchise. Which, Failure to Franchise, um, since this is dropping emergency quickly, go ahead and plug your latest episode of Failure to Franchise, Trev, because I found it interesting. Our latest episode uh, that, as we record this, was we just covered Wes Craven's Shocker, yep. uh, his his 1989 attempt to uh, kind of outdo uh, Freddy Krueger. And uh, you already listened to the episode, Goat? No, but I, I, I so, you know, I came across it on Twitter, but no, oh, I haven't okay. listened to it. So I won't, I won't spoil it for yeah. you or whoever else who might listen to it. But let's just say that uh, it was uh, I hadn't seen that movie since VHS, and I was uh, kind of surprised by my my reaction to the, the revisiting it this time because. It was honestly not at all the movie I re- I remembered in my head. I think yeah. I like Mandela affected a different movie in my in my mind than what I actually was when I sat down to watch it. So I'm actually really glad that I, I revisited it just just for that conversation about how a movie can kind of morph in your head over time. Yeah, I'm I'm actually taking the 31st and first off, so I actually have tomorrow will be my last day of work. Um, so yeah, I was actually planning on listening at about the last two or three hours of work tomorrow to slide me into my Halloween weekend. Yeah, and we'll also be dropping as as since this is coming out as an emergency thing, I'll just I'll just spoil this here. Um, we are dropping a special Halloween episode, uh, just a bonus little surprise. We're doing a success to series on the Saw franchise because nice. Chris and I both one of our our favorite uh, horror franchises, so we definitely wanted to talk about that one. I'm good to he- I'm, I'm glad to hear that because I was you know I won't ever say I was a huge Saw guy, 
But I was a Saw guy, and I, about part three, we go and see him every Halloween. Part three, I mm-hmm. dropped out of it. And uh, later on, like, I think it's just absence makes the heart grow fonder. Yep. I'm all about Saw. Like, I went and saw the 10-year re-release, whatever it was. Nobody went to it. Um, I, You know, I saw, um, what it was called, Jigsaw. And uh, I didn't see Spiral in theaters. Actually, Spiral came out. I don't even think my local theaters were open when Spiral came out. But um, well, Sp- Spiral also stupidly came out during the summer. The only yeah. Saw movie that screwed up and didn't come out on Halloween. Yeah. But yeah, so I'll be looking forward to that. So you're you're giving you're giving me extra content to enjoy over my holiday. Uh, That's right. Holiday. So yeah, so listeners, we're packing this in right around the three hour mark. This episode is not fun size, but I hope you love Michael Myers as much as uh, we do. Mm-hmm. And, and Corey. I, and Corey. I love them all. And Jamie, when she was in the bathroom at the end of part four. <laughs> all the killers of Halloween we love. Connell Cochran. We love all the killers of Halloween. So, yeah, we're hoping this, uh, you know, gets your stomach full of your Halloween candy to uh, lead you into the dull and dreary days of November coming up. So. That's right. As always, thanks again to you, Trev, for... Got to give you double thanks for this one because you didn't just show up; you came up with the concept. So thank you. No, 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 no. Thanks for thanks for listening to it or to the idea and taking me up on it. And always, and as always, thanks for letting me into the graveyard. Absolutely. And until next time, listeners, we'll see you back right here in the movie graveyard. Here, but now.